Hello and welcome to the next episode of The Podcast, a cannabis podcast for budding enthusiasts. As always, you're joined by your boy, Heavy Days, here from the Upside Down Library, and we want to give a massive shout out to our sponsors who help make episodes happen. A massive shout out to Seeds here now, all the hottest breeders, the latest drops, including some special strains from Heavy Days, ooh la la, check them out, guarantee on satisfaction, not just germination, if you have any issues or if you're not satisfied by the end of the growth, hit them up, they'll sort you out, but likewise, in order to get to the end of your harvest, you've got to keep your garden happy, healthy, pest and pathogen free, to do that, check out our friends at Copert Biological Systems, with all the latest and most advanced pest and predation technology, they will help your garden to produce the highest quality crop to date. If you've got aphids, check out the Par M. If you've got spider mites, check out the Spidex Vital. They have so many products, I promise you, they're gonna be able to help you produce the best harvest to date. Copert Biological Systems, thank you so much. We appreciate you so great. But in order to keep the bugs healthy and to keep your plants productive, you've got to make sure your room's dialed in. For that, check out our friends at Pulse Sensors. Your number one choice of sensor for monitoring all the different room parameters you have. You don't know. You could be leaving yield on the table. You could have a better crop, more resin, more potency, more flavor. From a single tent to a single room to a multi-state operation, they're going to help you dial in your room to get the best harvest today. Get serious, get a pulse. And finally, a huge shout out to our friends at the Patreon gang. Truly the lifeblood of the show. If you want to get early access to upcoming episodes, unheard exclusive content featuring the likes of Bodie, Mean Gene, Bob Hemphill, Tricomb Jungles, so much more, you've got to check out the Patreon. The Discord's starting to really get going and we're giving away genetics every two weeks with the Smoke With Heavy sessions. Definitely come on by, guys. Huge shout out to the Patreon gang. We love you. We appreciate you so much. So, friends, on this one, we're super stoked to have Jeremy of Builder Soil back for a part three here to talk all things organics and how to get the most out of your soil and your plants. You know him, you love him. So, without further delay, let's get into it. Alrighty, gang, we're back for another episode. And on this one, we are grateful to be joined by the organic wizard behind Builder Soil, a man you all know and love, Jeremy. Big thank you for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me back. This is great to talk to you again. I love it. 3.0. I think you must be up there with uh, some of the most appearances we've had so far. Well, I feel honored to be on that short list. Love it. Love it. So, uh, I guess to get things started today, tell me, what have you been smoking on recently? Uh, well, recently I'm usually doing something fresh and I've really been enjoying some outdoor that I just threw a few earth boxes out. Really late season. I like doing that. And the reason why is there's no effort involved. You know, if you do a full season outdoors, especially out here, certain times the, the sun's intense in the beginning and then the wind gets bad later and you have to trellis, which you should anyways. Um, but I just threw some earth boxes out really late and they just stacked in a nice little bushes that I had to do nothing to. And I ran some moms and this is right about the time um, my wife ended up going to hip surgery, elective one for some um, hip issues she, she was born with. And so we had to leave town for about a month. And that's part of why I chose this method. The person watching my house could just water the earth box. 
Um, but I pulled down three really great plants and I've been smoking on those as well as some of the last harvest here. And those three are the halitosis by Covert. Uh, it's a Chem D, you know, cross. And I really like it. And then uh, Marshmallow OG, which I had that kept for years. And that one was really had a lot of fuel on it. I'd say a little tiny hint of menthol in there somewhere where the halitosis is just straight fuel. And then um, I also grew some Chem 91 that I got by cutting via a local that I know that has been friends with a lot of the breeders for a while. And I think got it from Tom Hill. And so I just really wanted to try it. And it was, it was great. Um, I ended up liking the halitosis a little bit more, but I could see why the Chem 91, it had that same flavor profile and odor. Um, and that's what I've been smoking on lately. What a great answer. For anyone who's been keeping up with your YouTube series, uh, they would probably have seen that those sort of um, chemd halitosis sort of plants have popped up a few times. Would you say that's sort of the terpene profile you gravitate towards or it's just one that's been around? No, that's my favorite. I really do like that fuel. Uh, it really imparts like that mouth coat, that fuel feel and taste. And um, it seems like along with that, you get a lot of potency in those genetics and it just seems to work really well. I like that. Uh, the greasy, just a lot of the things that I look for. Um, I also have been smoking on some of these strawberry milk and cookies from Daz Night Owl, and that's an auto flower. And kind of surprised that I'd be actually grabbing that jar still. Um, but it's, it's pretty potent. I actually really like it and it's got great bag appeal. And so I kind of mix it up because that one's got some fuel to it, but it's got a little bit of fruitiness. And so uh, being able to alternate, you know, flavors is nice. That's amazing. We uh, have seen Daz put out a lot of work over the past year, really solidifying his name in the, the auto community. I know that you've been working with them on your YouTube channel. Have you changed your point of view, like in terms of like, do you think we're going to get to a point pretty soon where autos are like sort of indistinguishable in the quality? You know, it's tough to say. I think they are pretty in indistinguishable from what I can determine, but I don't feel every breeder is probably in that same category. I don't know because I've not grown a lot of them. But if everyone was the same results that I've gotten out of the limited run that I've done, um, it's hard to discern. Like if someone brought me a bag, I wouldn't be able to tell that was an autoflower. I mean, they're just all the frost, all the flavor and potency. And so I'm happy with that. But there's some things that I don't think they're going to be able to fully overcome. Um, and I think that they're overcomable in different ways. It's just not going to be the same. And so what I mean by that is like commercially, yeah, someone could run a whole bunch of autoflower seeds, but I still think they're going to lack uniformity as far as size. Um, there may be some that are more uniform than others, certain genetics that they're able to do a really good job with. Um, and certainly Daz's seeds were a lot more uniform than I expected. Uh, but I also learned, which I already knew and suspected, but I learned more in this last run was that any sort of tampering with them at all or transplanting instead of directly sowing, it seems to reduce the size a lot because it triggers them into their autoflower nature much faster. Um, and then the other thing that I just really, I really don't like, which isn't going to be solved is the fact that if you do find something that you're really attracted to and you would like to keep it, you can't. And I don't know, it doesn't kill it for me because I, I feel like autoflowers fill a niche that's very, very needed and everyone might use it in a different way. It's a tool for a certain job and it allows me to have great difference in flavor variety. And now that I know that they're potent and taste good, I'm happy to have that. Um, and at home, you know, I have a bedroom that I could just throw one in if I have some space and get some extra. 
So there's a million reasons why I would consider using them for people that are brand new um, or someone that just really not that into growing, but wants to have a plant in their backyard. Great way to introduce them. So a lot of benefits there, but man, almost kills it for me to know that no matter how great the plant is that I might select, I can't keep it. And so it almost has me not even looking. I just go, well, whatever happens, happens. And I'm not trying to discern which one's the best because it's going to be a one-off regardless. So That's good. That's almost got some like, um, some interesting like spiritual metaphysical sort of underlying ideas. Yeah. Like that's what I mean. Like not that like the, there's this hunt, so to speak, that's almost pointless, but it's kind of like, I'm looking for something I want to keep. And when you take that, now I'm not pursuing it the same way. And while it's totally fine, it just, it just, it scratches a different itch, I guess I'll say. Yeah. I like that. It's like, uh, the equivalent of being in the moment as a grower. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know, there's some of that needed. I have more seeds than time. And um, so when you take apart the responsibility of selecting the winner out of these supposed trophies in your seed vault, it's pretty easy just to pop seeds because it's like, well, they're you know, not going to keep them anyways. So I will say it goes both ways for sure. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. Look, I would uh, I would be remiss with myself if I didn't do it. I, uh, some shameless self-promotion. I, I know you've grown out an extremely reputable breeder, Heavy Days Genetics, Licorice Mama. Oh, yes. What was your experiences with that one? Uh, really, I liked it a lot. And it's funny, I, remember, I recall back specifically, I can almost picture the plant in my mind because of how colorful and resin-railed it was. Um, but it's hard. I, I remember enjoying it a lot. It's been a while, so I can't remember with detail what the flavor profile and notes were. I just remember going, oh, shit, I better grow this again. And I still have a pack uh, from you that I'd love to pop at some point. So might have to get to that. But yeah, I think, God, the Phantom Cookie, what did I run? It has Raspberry Mama in it. Yeah, and the Phantom Crackers. And the Phantom Crackers. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yes. Yeah, I really like that one. Nice one. I'll uh, I'll have to send you some more. It's interesting connection from across the world, so to speak. And I think that's part of why I really like. Yeah, no, that's really cool, man. I'm stoked you grew it out. That's that's amazing. So I noticed recently on the YouTube series, you were running um, a bunch of Duke's work. I think it was the, the Beefcake D, was it? Yeah, I ran the Beefcake D and I have other packs from him. And those I purchased serendipitously before we decided to work together a little bit. And it's been really slow uh, to come to fruition, but we did discuss doing a sort of soil recipe for him. And instead of just releasing it, we decided to make it, send it to him, have him do a full run in it and give us some feedback. And last I heard, he was pulling everything down and was really excited about it. Very happy with the results. And so hopefully that would lead to a release of a Duke Diamond soil recipe this year. Um, And I was stoked that I bought those Beefcake D before that conversation never happened. So it wasn't like, um, it wasn't motivated by that. Right. It was just pure. And, um, before he got locked up for a little while and before that happened, he was at an event. I think it was, uh, I can't remember. It was in Denver and Kevin from Rootwise was talking to him a lot. And he'd mentioned, you know, wanting to try some build a soil stuff and I wanted to buy some packs. And so that the conversation kind of started, um, but it wasn't until he reached out to me you know, a year or more later that we ended up bringing it full circle. And so um, that was fun. I really enjoyed those uh, beefcake D 
and I have more packs of his that I really like pop. But like I said, more seeds than time sometimes the issue. That's it. And you, you gave me the perfect segue in that uh, one of our Patreon listeners wanted to know that they've seen you work with a few different notable guys, like obviously you just mentioned Duke. Um, and I think on the website, I even saw that you guys have done up a kit for uh, gas of Swami Organics. And I guess uh, the Patreon supporters question is sort of, are there any major variances in these mix in terms of like, would you recommend one for a specific situation? Or do you think it's more about just like, they're comparable, but you just sort of pick which one appeals a little more to you? Yeah, I feel like the more I learn, the less I think that there's very, you know, specific differences. What I mean by that is good in, good out. This is like comparing two healthy people's diets. I think that if the results are good from both people, then you'd be probably safe to copy either. And there may be some nuances that operationally are slightly different, but um, Gasganistan was part of the original LOS forums and he was, he and, you know, MGD and I, and some others, um, we worked heavily behind the scenes to just discuss all of these topics at hand. And they were so friendly and answering so many questions and also had like a vibe that was trying to get all the people that were going this direction, kind of thinking the same way. And so then Coot was there and, um, we ended up after all of the drama on the forums, which always follows each other around, especially in the organic forum, there was like arguing with hydro people and then like retreating back to the organic section. There was private threads behind the scenes. And so um, we ended up as things got broken out and people were banned and all those, you know, typical political things happened. We ended up creating a forum together, which was that uh, living organic soil forum. And I helped do all the technical stuff and set up the V bulletin, you know, the, the back end and just, I had time at that point and I was very transparent. I told him, look, and I'm starting this company called build a soil. So if I'm going to work with you on this LOS form, it's going to be towards that end. Um, and I never tried to be markety about it, but I was helping that because it was my passion. Also knowing that my time was probably going to be consumed by business. So I'm not sure how long into it, maybe a year, year and a half. Um, it was consuming more time than I had build a soil was taking off. And so I just said, listen, I would prefer that you guys take this over fully. And I appreciate everything you've done this far. And then years later, they reached back out and said, hey, would you mind making sort of a recipe? Do you have all these ingredients together? It would help us with some of our you know, friends and customers. And so we created that recipe and that was really, it was really cool. And over the years, we've been able to work with some great people. I know um, many breeders have reached out, sent us seeds, or we've shared build as well products behind the scenes, just kind of in a, in like a friendly manner where there's no money exchange, just hanging out, sharing ideas with each other. And I think that's one of the really, really big benefits that I didn't understand um, that I've come to enjoy when I started Build as well. Yeah, wow, what a what an organic story. I didn't I didn't know that you had that um that long history in in the back with those guys. That's really cool. Yep. I think the only reason why everything's not more vocalized is there was a lot of politics, you know, not everybody got along. So Blue Jay Way had a falling out with Gastanistan and um ended up becoming more mountain organics. And then when that fell apart, then Coot tried to work with Mountain and that fell apart. And Coot has some definite feelings about that. And I happen to know that Coot is an old Coot and has some feelings about a lot of things. And so I try not to take on other people's stories, but I think that if we we're all in the same room, not everybody would be friends and build a soil. One of the things that I pride myself on is I really try and keep genuine relationships and I try not to judge people. We try and just, you know, keep that integrity. And so I think it's been pretty cool that everyone's allowed me to work with all sides of 
Like I've worked with Mountain Organics before. It didn't quite work out because soil recipe wasn't exactly the same as what we typically make. And I think that logistics, a million other reasons, right? He's in California, I'm in Colorado, worked with Gasganistan on that small project. And that, you know, mainly moves to his customer base. Um, but I like the ingredients in it. And then our stuff with Coot has been phenomenal. We worked with Jay Plant Speaker and then now potentially Duke Diamond. So I just hope it continues. It's really fun. That's beautiful. I love that. So we got we got like sort of related to this topic. We got an interesting comment from one of our Patreon listeners. They sort of said something to the effect of like, oh, amendments are like strains. They come in and out of fashion. I wanted to know, are there any amendments that you think are coming back into fashion at the moment? Oh, God, that's so true. Amendments are totally like fashion. I also think that the human diet's similar, right? Like certain salads or certain soups or certain styles of food will become very, very popular for a while. Um, and at the end of the day, right, we all just need to be able to put some fuel in our body. And um, hopefully if you're like me, it's organic and clean and you have these preferences for health, but um, it's similar comparison. And so as far as fad that I've seen come and go, Although I love neem cake, there's definitely been some resistance for many reasons, people equating it to some of the um, watered-down neem products on the market. Um, also, because of cannabis hypermesis, I think was unfairly blamed. Like, there's been some weird politics there. Kelp meal you know, has always been very popular, but recently with heavy metal testing in the United States and specific states being very, very proactive about it, um, to the point where politically it almost seems like they were trying to force people to grow hydroponically by reducing the level of metals allowed to ridiculous levels. Um, and then also, for instance, like cadmium, when we first learned about it, um, I'm sorry, arsenic, we found out that there was organic arsenic versus inorganic arsenic. And we reach out to the kelp supplier. They're very aware of that when it comes to animal feed. But I think Michigan even lists which one they prefer, but they only test for the total. And so I think kelp meal has kind of gotten taken out a little bit because it does have some natural arsenic that I mean, shoot, the, some of the longest living populations eat seaweed all the time. So for me, it's not a concern. And for the home grower, it's not a concern. But I think those politics stimulate some of the fad swings. And I think kelp meal will probably come back with a vengeance as people start to learn and understand. Um, but yeah, I would say fad-wise right now, I don't know if there's anything that's coming and going, anything in particular. But those are two that really stand out to me. This year, there's nothing that I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be a big, you know, fad. Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. I'd love to jump into the name a little more, but I always like to give this caveat because um, I, I agree. I, I'm I'm not sold at all that neem, is res- neem oil specifically is responsible for uh, cannabis hyperemesis and... There is there is a paper out there. It's a it's a case study of a guy who rocked up to a hospital and he had accidentally drunk thirty mil of neem oil. I think he said it was in a cup and he thought it was something else. Anyway, he got very very sick and had cyclic vomiting. But then there was another case of someone who ingested about ten mil and they didn't get as sick. And so what it basically suggested was that if if neem was the responsible or agent you would probably need to consume a lot more than what could be residually on a plant. Because that was the story I always got told. It's like, oh, this is from people spraying neem or using neem. And I sort of, yeah, I sort of, um, I don't think the evidence really supports it that much. But 
to delve more into the neem thing, one of our listeners did want to ask, you know, I'd love to ask Jeremy if we could hear more about his thoughts on neem, specifically around like any controversies or misconceptions, because it seems like some people are reluctant to use it while others swear by it. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I swear by it. I don't use it very often, but I know how well it works. And I think part of the reason I don't use it is, you know, it's oily and it has an odor to it. And so depending on the use case, I think prevention is really ideal, but neem oil works so well in certain instances. And, you know, when we started sourcing neem oil, we found there was a wildly different amount of these limonoids that are in there azadiractin A and B and nimbin and salanin and all these others that I learned about from Coot and from the Neem textbook. Part of what, you know, Coot always taught me and relied upon was that these were thousands of years old as far as being utilized as medicinal plants with humans. And so obviously anything medicinal, you can abuse it. Um, but I believe neem oil, neem bark, neem leaf, all these things have been ingested for a long time in amounts that would be fairly normal. I don't think anybody wants to go just drink olive oil. But obviously, neem has some definite, um, some things to it, these limonoids that are of benefit, but could also be of concern. Where I believe the issue comes from is when I'm purchasing neem oil, the way that it works out there is that it's all wild harvested. You're not having like a 40 acre neem tree farm. It may exist now, but for the most part, the vast majority of all neem was wild harvested and the villagers or anybody that would be collecting these seeds could then exchange them for money. And so during the season, everybody collect the best ones. You bring them to the, the, the facility and they would pay you out. And it could be a little more complex than that, but that's how I understand it. And so they would mix all that together. And some trees grown in certain areas, a mature tree and a certain type of soil or climate may have a much higher azadiractin, nimbin, salanin content than other ones. And so typically what you get left with is the average, whatever's in the oil that they produce. And because of the way, you know, these things work and people are selling it for as a direct purposes, many of these manufacturers would formulate neem oil. So they wouldn't just press it. They would then take extract of as and others, and they would mix it in there so that you would have at least some minimum quantity. And oftentimes I found that these formulations were lower than even the quantities we were finding of the premium. So when we were able to get the best, it was just wild harvested and it was just fresh pressed and it had very high amounts of these compounds. And so my suspicion is that some of these extracts that are being used, um, when they're being formulated back into the oil, you wouldn't know when you're buying the oil. And I think there'd be a vast difference between a formulated version versus an all natural version. And then to take it a step further, many of the people that are actually foliar spraying, at least the majority, are not using a natural you know, neem oil. Typically when you hear neem and it comes to a commercial row, it's going to be a product that's pre-emulsified and is an extract of neem and then is highly concentrated. And so a lot of it is just understanding that and knowing that many of these potential health effects could be from the fact that they're using neem products that are different than a naturally occurring neem oil. And then you take that a step further and you find out that a number of these manufacturers that were manufacturing a neem extract product, an ASA product as they call it, were pulled off the shelves for adding in a number of other pesticides that were not listed on the label. And so when you understand the cannabis industry and how products are sold and how there's been so many suppliers taken out, it muddles up the argument a lot going, well, do you even know if this is a contaminated multiple pesticide as a product that was being used or whether it was just something normal? 
And it's hard to say because, you know, there's going to be some growers that have said, Hey, I used to grow with neem. Now I don't, I don't have cannabis hypermesis. Um, but I think that that's the least argument that I've heard. Mostly it's uh, like a friend I know or something like that. And there's been tons of research on both sides, at least by wannabe sleuths. I don't have an exact answer. My gut tells me that it's not this neem oil and that when you use a natural neem oil, you emulsify it properly, that it's going to work really well. And that the challenge I think with organics is that none of them eradicate everything completely. It takes some discipline, some repeat application and, you know, really um, preemptive getting it early. So I feel like a lot of people are probably using it incorrectly saying it doesn't work and then following up with, yeah, there's also these health concerns. So now I don't have to think about it, but really if I was tasked with doing, I mean, a lot of fruit tree growers, there's so many people that use neem oil and have really good results with it. Um, I wouldn't hesitate to use it on my cannabis. Now, I do know that you can test for azadiractin and you'll show a little bit if you're using it heavily. So I would avoid using it in flour. It's an oil, wouldn't want to. I would use it in veg. Um, so just some considerations. No, some great thoughts there. I had heard people say something like uh, it can actually damage the microbial life in the soil. Have you ever heard anything along those lines? Yeah, I've heard that. We've argued against that pretty significantly um, because it was, I think, ill-founded. Um, when you look at naturally occurring amounts in the neem cake and, you know, nobody's dumping oil in their soil. And if they are, there shouldn't be. But the neem cake is typically what that argument was against. And Coot shared all the information because, you know, he obviously cared because he shared people um, the benefits of neem early on. And what we found was a number of studies. Um, in fact, I think specifically people were saying that it kills the fungi or the fungi and that it would be a problem for that. And there's a number of studies where you can see people adding neem cake as well as other medicinal herbs to the pre-sterilized uh, mushroom growing bags and then fruiting fungi on it and getting phenomenal yield and results. So nature's complicated in that way where it may have some adverse effects, but it's through a pathway that has an ability to discern what its targets are. And what I mean by that is people are amazed to find that neem oil is pretty harmless when it comes to beneficials and soil life, but pretty harmful when it comes to some of these pests. And you're like, well, that doesn't make sense. Um, well, how is that possible? How can it choose? And you're like, well, the bug that's eating your plant ends up eating the oil where the other ones that don't eat your plant aren't eating the oil. And so as you take it a step deeper, you tend to see like, oh, that's why it works on this, but not the other. As far as biology and fungi, I'd imagine anything you overdo could cause a problem, but I've seen you just sprinkle neem cake on the soil. It starts to proliferate for life. Um, some people will say that honey is totally antibacterial. And so someone might suppose that adding honey would just kill all the bacteria in your soil until you realize that putting a drop of water in the honey will spoil the whole batch pretty quickly. Um, it's, it's when it's intact, right? As soon as you dilute it, now it's lost its antimicrobial properties and it becomes part of nature and part of life in which decay is absolutely a big part of that. So I think it's the same. Yeah, what a great answer. I wanted to ask you your thoughts on a sort of related topic, which is like over the few years, and I suspect it's in part due to the proliferation of uh, the Elaine Ingham classes she teaches, but I've seen a lot more people um, trying to assess the quality of, say, their compost or their medium through the microscope. My question is, 
do you think a view under the microscope gives you a full picture or do you think that like it's not necessarily going to tell you like you know if it looks good under the microscope it might not necessarily be good or do you think there's a pretty strong correlation i don't think there's a very strong correlation i could be overstepping here but i'd rather talk about what my gut and my experience really shares and i do not incorporate a microscope into my gardening methods and i don't think others should feel like they have to um, if you have one, I certainly think that you're going to find correlation to seeing biological life in healthy conditions. But I'm hesitant to say that you can take a microscope, certainly an average microscope at that, and identify if something is a specific name of bacteria and be positive that that specific slide that you're viewing would indicate that it's a quality compost. I think that Biology can exist on a low quality compost as far as how it's ideal to integrating into a soil mix or how it's ideal into using on your farm. Now, the way nature works is typically what makes a good compost would also lead to great biological life. Um, and that's part of what confuses me sometimes when people would say, oh, if you have a sulfate in your soil, it's going to kill the microbiology, like using um, some sort of trace mineral. And we've since learned that that's really not true. And of course, in nature, there's going to be some of these trace elements and there's an abundance of life. So I think it's about that balance. And I've seen a lot of compost that visually, even without a microscope, are teeming with life and they are just awful for producing soil. So that's where that comes from. And what I mean by that is um, the percentage of sodium, the percentage of potassium that both of those, the percentage of magnesium, I mean, when you have high magnesium, high potassium, high sodium, and plants will still use it in very low dilution, but you add it at 30% in your soil recipe, you could just ruin your entire soil mix. But visually, you could see fungi growing on it, and you could put it under a scope and see biology. And it doesn't have to be anaerobic to have a nutrient profile that wouldn't lend itself to the same percentages we use in our compost. But when you're using, when you're not building a soil, you're just brewing a tea, the argument becomes, does it matter? Are you just trying to brew the biology? And Coot really taught me early on. I mean, behind the scenes, he was basically saying compost teas are complete bullshit. There's no reason. And didn't really like the whole keep it simple tea brewer thing that was going on, even though he really respected um, Elon Hussey and Tad was on the forums at the time. And so there was all that, let's keep it all civil. Microbe Organics was there and the, he worked with keep it simple um, via, I think Elon is his name. I, you know, I, I could be getting some of this wrong, but he's credited basically with inventing compost tea. And so, you know, Coot's not going to go on there and be like, you know, compost tea is stupid because microbe organics and you had Tad and everybody there, but um, Tad never grew plants. So that I always focused on T um, Tad Wilson because he was a grower. I'm sorry, Tad Wilson, Tim Wilson. And Tim and I still exchange emails every once in a while. And I really have, I really like him. I have a special, like, I just, it warm, warm feelings come up when I think about him. He's always been very helpful behind the scenes, um, very polite in discussion. And I believe a lot of what he said as far as what compost tea can do and what they can produce. But behind the scenes too, people are like, man, 2.38% vermicompost, like, come on, you know, what are these numbers? Um, but he had a scientific mind. And so when he found a number that worked for him, he's going to list very specifically the data. So I, I understand all of that. But Coot was like, man, just put the castings on the soil. Just top dress the neem cake. Like, why are you trying to put it in water and move it around? It makes no sense. He's all just from the bread baking. He's like, you don't, 
I mean, yeah, maybe you do an auto wise, like maybe you'll mix the, the yeast and water for a little bit, but for the most part, it's going to proliferate. Like it's just going to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow in its medium. So, um, I don't do as many compost teas as I once tinkered with, but I think it all has its place. That's, that's a really interesting answer because I feel like over the past, say, two years or so, I've seen more and more growers who historically were sort of like yourself and I where they're just sort of not using many teas and they're just sort of building the soil and watering. I've seen a, a move towards people using more uh, powdered products in their regime. Products, th- these products are great. Things like Organics Alive... Um, some of these other, the Thriven you sell, some of these products are great. I guess the question becomes, do you think as we get more of these products and tools in our arsenal, we will begin to utilize them more? Or do you think it will, like at the core of it all, a lot of people will just stay with like top dressing, watering only? I think there's two questions here and I'm trying to answer them in a way that I, I feel like when I'm thinking about it. And so as not to forget, I'll address them and then I'll try and answer them so you can help remind me. But one of them is, is there benefits using all these powdered stuff? And I see them as tools to get the job done easier instead of, you know, you can't produce more than hundred percent. Like if you take a genetic and it's full potential, these powders will help you get there, but you're never going to surpass that. And you can achieve that without using them to say that there's, you know, it's like sometimes using a, a staple guns easier than using a stapler. Sometimes using a nail gun is better than a hammer, but you do need it. No, you can use the hammer all day long. And so when it comes to soil, that's one of the arguments. That's one of the things I see. And that's why I use some of them. And sometimes I don't depends on the system. But the other thing is the psychology. And I got to tell you, we like, I know myself, I like to tinker. And so I don't think you're going to get everybody to just stop tinkering and just do water only because although it may work and work very well, you're left with time and you're left thinking, well, one, I wonder, and I want to try this and I want to try that. And it's just, it's going to happen, you know? And so that's at least me personally. Um, this is like saying, Hey, can you just eat the same thing seven days a week in the kitchen? You're like, sure. It'd probably be very healthy, but I'll never do it because I enjoy tinkering. You know, <laughs> uh, It's different to a plant. It's not like I'm forced to taste it, but um, I think that's part of what it is. It's just psychologically, we'll always be wanting to try new things. And, you know, I think in cannabis as well, it's like, we want to have that fire and you want to be able to share it. And so anything that might help you get that more consistently, I think is likely to be uh, moving in and out of these fads and everything else. There's always going to be people buying stuff and trying it, but circling back to the benefit of them. I, I definitely find myself where, when I'm busy doing a lot more, just water only, but I do notice that like amino acids, um, man, they, they, really do help things grow faster. And so I notice a lot of health in that regard. And so when it comes to living soil, we're not adding a lot of quick release nitrogen, which is good because I don't really think it's of huge benefit, but um, there's typically a lot that can slow release from the organic matter and the seed meals and the other things. But tapping in at the speed of the biology under intense grow lights in a perfect environment, sometimes depending on genetics is less than ideal. And so while it can be done, I think the way to do water only where you have the least amount of issue is to do the less is more everywhere. Don't have the the highest intensity of lighting, have a good environment, have things where 
they're likely to just produce phenomenal health. But when you start steering them or driving them slightly harder for commercial purposes or just for fun, some of these products make a difference in the speed of delivery where you can outpace that biological, you know, the plant can kind of outpace the biology. And, and especially when like you've overshot the container size. And I know a lot of new growers are like, yeah, five gallons, huge. That's bigger than I've ever done. I'll stick with that. And then I'm like, why? There's now a foot of empty space between one container and the next, just fill it all with soil. Um, but I noticed that. And so if you overshoot a five gallon, some of these water solubles will really help you keep that yield up. Um, so they're tools, but again, you can get phenomenal quality water only. And I think some of the desire to do that from the purists is that it is achieved the same result, maybe arguably, you know, better, but the same result. Okay. Because it's just finesse we're talking about or, um, and they did it in a very pure way. And I think there's something to achieving that, but once you've done it, I also feel like, well, it's okay. I know this produces good results too. And there's now more organic powders that actually are very clean ingredients. And so it starts to give you some of that flexibility. And, um, so that's, those are my thoughts on it. Now that's brilliant. There's so many like little gems in there. I'd love to dig into. And, and I guess, um, first and foremost, I totally agree with you. My new mantra, floor space is dead space. And uh, I encourage people to get a bigger pot or to chuck another pot in there. Um, and I can certainly appreciate the point about those powdered products can help you to stay on top of things. Because I know myself, I am that guy you referenced running five-gallon pots. And um, I say to people, look, I, sometimes I feel like organics is like, um, it, it, it can be a bit disingenuous, like some of the marketing in the sense that like there are some people who say, yeah, you can do water only in a five gal. I try to talk about what you say, which is like you, you're probably leaving stuff on the table in the sense that it might need that bit of extra help. Yeah, it's unlikely they get it right. Like if they have a big stretcher and they don't flip like day one, a lot of these newer growers are like, well, I've edged 45 days. I'm like, fine, a five gallon? Like, what are you thinking? <laughs> so there's a caveat when someone says this is water only soil. I say, okay, I'm going to grow a 10 pounder. Is it still water only? And that one gallon pot? No, it's not. And so although it's easier for me to say, yes, water only, that's the white belt answer. The black belt answer is always, well, it depends. <laughs> and that's not as marketable, right? I love that judo. That's amazing. So I wanted to run an idea by you that I've been trying to emphasize more. A lot of the listeners uh, to our show are coming more from the passion side. There's a good number of them that work in the industry, but a lot of them are, are like myself. They're doing this because they they love growing. And what I realized was is a lot of people in our community, they do um, really crunch the numbers on things and want to pick the most cost-efficient option and things like that. More recently, um, sort of in line with the mantra you were talking about with the autos and like not thinking about it and sort of enjoying yourself a bit more, I've tried to approach growing with this different mindset of like my brother, he's a real tech head. He buys the newest PlayStation as soon as it comes out and he's got the newest gadgets and that's what makes him happy and that's what he spends his money on. And I thought I should do the same thing with growing. Like I should stop trying to get the cheapest thing and approach it as like, yeah, it's a hobby. I throw money at it and, you know, and I have a good time with it. And I think since doing that, I've sort of had a bit more fun. Um, you know, obviously, I'm not spending my entire savings on growing, but I'm just trying to get out of the mindset of like doing this as cheap as possible and thinking this is a hobby. It's okay to spend a little bit of money on your hobby. What's your thoughts on that mindset? Yeah, I agree. Um, 
I still think that if someone is trying to replace a cost in their life, it's very worthwhile to do it in the most cost-effective manner so that you're not lying to yourself about why you're doing it. But eventually when you become a producer and you do eliminate that expense and you're happy with it, I feel like it's only right to invest back into what is giving you so much. And when we look at some of these tools, they make a big difference. And I almost joke with friends, and I'm sure you have too, that uh, these plants are making us do this. They're like, I want a better light. Go buy it for me. You know, it's like, who's smarter? The plants are us. All of a sudden, this one particular plant is overtaking, you know, it's grown everywhere in the world. It's given a very happy life. It's able to reproduce. And so from a pure survival of the fittest standpoint, um, that old that old thing is, are, are we growing the plants or the plants cultivating us so that when we all die, they get to eat us? You know what I mean? Like it's, I think they'll be here longer. And I'm not scared to invest in it as well. And I've noticed some big differences like quality of grow light. And I call this dialing it in. So when you first start, um, for me, I was working at a nine to five and I knew that I'd need a flower tent instead of just my veg tent. And I was keeping genetics. So I went to my grow shop and I said, hey, if you front me a flower tent, I'll pay you and, you know, as I get over the next month, but that would allow me to transition my plants before they were too big and miss my timeline to wait for budget. And maybe not the best to do that, but they worked with me and I was able to step up to the next and have a veg and a flower room and then paid them off. And now I own two. And then for me, lighting was the same way. I'd get a light that worked for my budget. And then immediately, as soon as I could get like the better light, I'd put that in the flower room and then the budget budget one would go kind of to the veg area. And then eventually you're like, okay, well, it's really dry in Colorado. Maybe I should invest in humidity. And you start tinkering with stuff that basically takes hours and it's never consistent. And you go, all right, F it. I'm going to buy the best humidifier. And you're like, oh my God, the plants grow so fast. This is so fun. So it's definitely worth it to invest some money, have the funds, see the results. But I don't want people to hear that. They're on a budget and think they can't do it. You can crush it. It's just that it is more fun to buy the latest tech and, and throw it down. I'm really having fun with the automation tools the NIWA that we use, N-I-W-A, um, it's that power strip thing. And it's really great how it automates the humidity and temperature and all these things by firing and actually controlling it like you're running a professional greenhouse. It's pretty cool. That's awesome. I love that a lot. That's really cool. Um, and yeah, I would also echo your sentiment. The, the reason why I get the most fun out of the new gear I buy is because I learned how to make good results while doing it pretty frugally. And if you can do that, when you get the new gear, you'll just be crushing it. So definitely get behind you there. Recently, we had Jake and Marco of the No-Till Kings come on the show. They spoke very highly of you and your products. I would love to hear, like, you know, what, what's your experience being working with facilities? Are you seeing any more facilities get on board? It seems like they were one of the first to me. Can you give us a bit of a rundown on that? Yeah, I'd say they were... One of the first that, that would endorse us publicly, as far as like a lot of people in the beginning would never tell that they used any brand because they didn't want, it was always like, well, we got to beat the, we got to have better than the people down the street. And now that there's been a big shakeup in the industry, so to speak, um, I feel like Soil Kings is always very transparent. They're like, yeah, we use Build a Soil 3.0. This is what we do. And they teach their whole process and they are above and beyond. I mean, they grind up their own stocks for mulch. They... They are really detail-oriented, and I'm super impressed by them. Um, there's been hundreds of facilities that came before them and hundreds that will come after. But last year was definitely a decline in commercial orders for us. And we overcame that with um, simultaneously, we were already going to be going after the wholesale market, you know, lawn and garden stores. And we saw it as a way to provide an income stream to these garden and hydro stores that were all had the same catalog, 
And a lot of these were just the race to the bottom as far as pricing and a lot of hydro stores closing. And there's been a big shift, you know, during Corona, people were buying a lot more rec and medical herb. And now that they're all back at work, there's been a lot less sales. Um, on the commercial side, California had a huge shakeup politically and the cost per pound and overproduction. And so we saw a huge decline in commercial grows. Um, sometimes you'd send two, three truckloads, you'd get multiple hundred yard quotes and we'd be running them all over the country. And not everyone would follow through, but a lot of people would step up and we'd be sending trucks everywhere. And this year we've been sending like full truckloads of cubic footers and stuff to lawn and garden stores and a different, just different, right? Uh, but we did the same amount of business last year's um, sorry, now it's two years ago as we did last year. And so seeing that change, um, I think has me believe that there's probably less commercial grows as far as the numbers stepping up. And even like New Mexico, um, in 2022 really had maybe 2021, a lot of people just coming out of the woodworks because some of the changes in the law, and then all of a sudden 2022 overproduced. So a lot of people are tucking tail and well, how do I sell these hundreds of pounds, even if they did a great job. And so we always see that every state that opens up, there's just a million quotes, truckloads being sent out. And then the tide goes out, you see who's skinny dipping, which in this business, it's very hard not to, you're taxed to hell, your product's not getting better on the shelf, it's aging. And so it's difficult. And I think that while there's less commercial growers, we're still, we're still selling a lot of commercial um, soil. Uh, in the beginning, it was like, who's going to do it though? Because living soil wasn't a style. Now I think it's a total style and there's commercial growers that want to do it. It's a matter of how many new ones are opening under the current market conditions and how many new ones are opening under the current market conditions that are in love with living soil. A lot of them are like spreadsheeters funded by venture capitalists and they're just going to go with some hydroponic model. Um, but in the beginning, I know one of the first big grows that I saw do it, I'm sure you're aware of, um, GLP Nevada. And so we worked with them originally and also someone from those same living organic soil forums, uh, Matt Davenport. He was there with all of us on the LOS forums and the whole deal. Had a ton of energy. And I remember behind the scenes, I don't know if he knows this or not, but Gas and MGD and I were like, Bro, is this guy crazy? Because he was like, we're going to have facilities and it's going to be everywhere. And well, everything he said came true. So he definitely wasn't crazy. He was just passionate. And he and I have a great relationship still. Um, but he worked on that GLP Nevada one in the beginning as well. And they have like 30 something cycles going. They've been able to manage the business side as well as the growing side, which is very rare. And they're, from what I can tell from outside appearance, they're doing well. So I think that the model has been proven. Um, more of the grows that we work with, I think are like one of them in New Mexico that we really love working with. They got what was called a micro license. And so they, it's really cool what they have going on. They have like rolling beds that they custom built and have like four small grow rooms with four beds in it. And they harvest each room at a different time. And they were allowed to be fully vertical in this micro license, make their own extracts, sell their own cannabis, grow their own cannabis, do it all under one roof. And those types of facilities, I just love working with on living soil because it seems more like a Michelin star restaurant than a franchise McDonald's chain. That's really where I think living soil shines. So, Yeah, what a, what a brilliant answer. I guess to, to dive into some of the specifics of their style, the thing that um, I wouldn't say surprised me, but I, I was intrigued to hear more about was um, Jake and Mark of the Soil Kings mentioned that everything they do is really based around soil tests. They do it like sort of mid-cycle and at the end of the cycle. And when they top dress, it's based on like a formulation to address that specific test they've got. 
So my question is, this is sort of um, understandable on a commercial sense, but it's quite in contrast to what you've taught us on your YouTube channel. What would you do if you were going to do, say, the micro license you just described? Would you want to do this really test-heavy approach? Oh, it's really tough to say. What I mean by that is you can have an answer in your head and then have someone put a gun to your head and see, do you still have the same answer? And being in business is like having a gun to your head. So I think that we do other things for insurance reasons to not only that, but can you imagine having a problem in your grow and not being able to tell your partner or investor why? And then he goes, well, do you have any testing? You're like, well, the fuck's that for? I just grow. It, it's easy to support when things are going well, but it's, it's hard to own that position when things aren't. And so from a business perspective, I think it's very, very important to do some sort of testing. Um, I'm not as familiar with the level of testing that I do, but I believe they do once or twice through flower, which is significantly more than other people would do. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of things to consider there. Um, I'd imagine I'd have to discuss it with them. They're probably doing a saturated paste test, which is what's water soluble. And to me, that makes sense because when we do a soil test, you got to understand they take a thimble sized scoop, which might work for agricultural soil, but it's very strange for potting soil. We have chunky stuff in there and they'll either grind it or sift it. And that can drastically change the results. But uh, the lab that we work with, I trust their soil testing results, but to test a regular soil test where they take an acid, they dissolve the entire abundance of soil into what its nutrient components would be if fully utilized over a year or 10 years or however long it took. To me, that doesn't make sense to test that way twice during flower because, I mean, it's not really exactly what the plant's tapping into. It's more the soil profile. But I'd imagine what they're doing is a saturated paste test, which is basically putting water on the soil and deciding, okay, if nutrients end up in the water, then for sure the plant's going to be almost forced to take those up. What I mean by that is typically the soil test is going to be based on cation exchange which you could argue the plant is going to exchange with to pick up what it wants when it needs it. So you need a balanced soil. That's filling your buffet. But when you look at the saturated paste test, it's a test, in my opinion, of what it's going to be forced to deal with. Now, in an earth box, you have clean water below and it can kind of bypass by taking clean water up. But in typical in soil, especially in a, in a smaller container, those roots are going to have to drink the water for its moisture needs. And that's going to come with what's water soluble regardless. And so when you consider that, it would make sense to test a couple of times during flower to say, Hey, what's water soluble. And you're almost looking for excesses that would cause a lack in yield because they're like too much sodium is being released or not enough calcium or whatever. And I think that you could probably tailor a top dressed if it was micronized enough, or it had the key inputs that then you watered through and would stimulate a change to that. But other times people are using, I mean, sap analysis of the leaf or tissue testing. And there's a lot of theories between which one's more important. You know, tissue is kind of a leading indicator where the sap is like instantaneous and it could be changing multiple times per day. So who knows how accurate. And then people actually custom formulate foliar sprays, especially in large scale agriculture based on the parts per million in movement they want to see in the sap test. And so I can't help but to be reminded of Masanobu Fukuoka thinking that the smarter you get, the less, you know, so to speak, almost like going down a rabbit hole too narrowly minded. I would never accuse soil kings of doing that. I bet you they're they're doing great and they're able to back up what their gut says by getting a soil test evaluation. And then if you're going to be throwing an amendment at it and you have a soil test and something's lacking, 
I think it'd be very hard not to want to add that, right? So the data is going to be helpful regardless. Um, the home grower though, I think if they're following basic principles, they should be totally fine. Those basic principles were harder to understand until we did soil testing. So build a soil. When I first started, we would just whip up Coots mix and send it to the lab. And I'd read the soil test and it was relatively similar to what I was seeing as far as recommendations. But then I'd have an expert say, wow, you can't grow in that much sodium or wow, this is way too much phosphorus or whatever the particular person would say. And despite all of that, the plants grew well. So I did kind of learn to take it with a grain of salt, but we've been able to dramatically improve our soil, our soil based on the type of inputs you have to mix together by doing soil testing. So it's a long answer and it's kind of that black belt answer of it depends. I think commercially, I would definitely do it at home. It's almost like, look at when you make dinner, you know, to add some protein, some carbs, some veggies, right? Like, you know how to make a well-rounded meal. If you have that basic level of understanding of soil, you don't need testing. You can just go at it. But 5% difference could be a huge difference when it comes to the bottom line. So soil testing would be more important on a commercial level. Yeah, yeah, hugely. I can I can appreciate the, uh, the extra benefit it's going to bring on a commercial slash uh, sort of job situation. Just to, to round out the other end of that question, um, one of our listeners, I, I suspect they may not have got around to watching your YouTube videos yet, but they basically wanted to say, could you give us a quick overview? This is an Australian grower, by the way. Um, if I'm not able to get a nutrient test or a soil test, what's what's the general strategy for just re-amending? Well, this is great. Um, so we have one YouTube episode that goes over specifically two methods. I've done other episodes where we've done soil testing, but I'll give you the high, uh, the high point. And then on, if you go to buildasoil.com and you go to the blog, the most recent one is like a blank blog. And when you click on it, it's a form. You put in your email and it gives you a free report. That free report is how to make your own custom organic fertilizer. And that term COF, custom or sorry, complete organic fertilizer, custom because you're making it, but it's complete, was taught by Steve Solomon, the intelligent gardener, who's now out your way. Um, and I think that that's interesting because when I reference how he teaches it, it makes fundamental sense. Just like saying you should have some meat, you know, a protein, you should have some greens. Like this is how you make a balanced meal. And he said, what the soil needs is your complete organic fertilizer. And the way to make it is to follow these ratios. And so you can get that report and it really does break down no matter where in the world you live, how to make a complete organic fertilizer. And so that's what we did in YouTube, um, this most recent series four in quadrant two in the three by three bed. And the results are stunning. And I'm happy because we just made up the top dress. We didn't use craft blend. We didn't use like an off the shelf that we have. We made it from scratch in our YouTube video. And that title is, I think, Reamending Two Ways, I think is the title of that YouTube video in season four, uh, more towards the beginning because it's before we planted. And we grew cover crop in the bed. And then I broke it all down. And then I put my custom, my complete organic fertilizer that we made on camera into the bed. And I remember thinking, man, that's a lot of stuff, but I showed how to do the math and man, it's doing really, really, really well. And we're getting a great fade on it. It's not like we overdid anything. Um, and I'm confident if we saw a soil test, it would reveal what I'm seeing as far as plant health. And part of the way we did that is also understanding that we're two feet deep. And when it comes to soil on a farm, you don't amend it two feet deep. You amend the top six inches. That's where the fertility is. So I treated it the same way. I took my you know three by three bed, which is nine cubic feet, and it's two feet deep. So there's 18 cubic feet in there. And I only amended really the top six inches. So I made my complete kit for four and a half cubic feet, 
based on the, you know, one to two cups of nutrients and two to four cups of minerals. And in that video, I break down all those ratios. And in the complete report, you can see Steve's version. And then what we used to build a soil way to basically duplicate that. And you don't have to go to build a soil. You can just Google Steve Solomon, complete organic fertilizer, and you can find a million resources of people talking about him as well as his own website. And I think he has a growing in Tasmania, like a whole edition on, you know, how to grow in that climate. So pretty cool. Yeah, for sure. Everyone go, go check out Steve Solomon. Um, just as a, as a cool little side note, I, uh, I was doing a consultation for one of the legal medical cannabis facilities in Australia and they're in Tasmania. And I was like, oh, you guys should hit up Steve Solomon. And they were like, we're already working with him. And I was just like, yes. <laughs> yes. That's so cool. Yeah. I, I will say that he's just a great guy. Um, I just like zoomed him or Skyped him or something. And he answered and we started talking and he would answer emails and some of these unique relationships that I've developed out of my curiosity. And it seems like other curious, passionate people are when they really tell that someone's on the same path, they want to talk to them. And so Steve's been a big help. Um, and he also encourages me to not take everything so seriously. He mentions organics will be the loudest, but the least like, you can put some trace minerals in some things. You can work with some of these others, right? If you read his book, you'll know what I'm saying. Some people are very pure about which amendments. And he's he definitely t- discusses all of that. But his takeaway from the organics is, oh, some is better, more is great. And just throw compost at everything. And the balance of having his book while growing organically, I think, keeps it uh, on track. So, yeah, Steve's great. Beautiful stuff. I love it. I love it. Uh, in one of the answers from one or two questions ago, you mentioned a buzzword in the industry. You said micronized. One of our listeners, I'm sure you've you've been dealing with this a lot. Uh, our buddy Slow Nickel on Instagram has been causing quite a stir with his discussions around soluble calcium and micronized calcium. Are you able to weigh in on that for us at all? Give us your thoughts. God, I'd love to. I'd love to, but... Um, the guy hates me, has blocked me, won't talk to me. And so I basically have no idea he exists because I can't see anything. Um, but he's been talking calcium forever. So it makes a ton of sense to me. And I really don't know why he's blocked me. He's told me that we had, um, a gentleman here, Zach Branson, it's been here forever in customer service. And he was doing some of our soil testing analysis using a lot of my methodology. And during that time, he picked up the soil test calculator online, um, that was talked about, I think by Steve Solomon and others. And he was using that as part of his analysis and basically slow nickel reached out and told me that we were ripping people off by using some online calculator to do his job. And I, I just can't imagine that he thinks that simply, he has to know that I was super passionate about it. He also worked with a local grower out here and had that me make a soil mix for that grower. And I suspect that he thinks we took some of that tech into our build a soil products but realistically, I was learning from him since day one. And the main thing that I take from him is that calcium is super fucking important. He just pounds it in your head. And I cannot discount him for that at all. And from an agricultural level, foliar sprays make a lot of sense, right? Because you can bypass soil issues. So I think people would lean on that. But from a, you know ideal perspective where you can get a potting soil design with lots of calcium in it, low gypsum like you would prefer, and not put as much pressure on a crop by having an abundance of soil... I haven't seen like a huge reason why you're going to need to hammer foliar sprays of micronized calcium, but I've certainly tried some products. I have not tried his. Um, there are Ferta Organic makes a calcium carbonate micronized powder that is suspendable and foliar. It's been around for a while. Um, I don't like the carbonates as much. And I suspect 
you know, Astera would not as well. Um, and also slow, uh, slow nickel. Sorry. I was thinking, um, the ideal soil for a minute. I get some of the agronomists interchanged in my mind, but micronization makes sense to me in this, like a protein shake does for a human, right? It takes effort to break down a steak in your stomach, but it's pretty easy when it's ground down into basically powder. That's so fine. You drink it in liquid. And that's part of what I mentioned before, how you get a faster result from some of these powders. So micronization does make sense. Soil biology. Like if you're going to make compost, you don't want to put a whole branch in there to make compost. You want to chop it up into wood chips. This is the same exact thing. It creates more surface area for the biology to work on, which means you're going to get a faster, more duplicatable result. So micronization is huge. Foliar sprays, they make a lot of sense to me. Um, and they certainly make sense under corrective conditions or when there's a soil issue. If I've ever overwatered, I'll immediately bust out like aminos and a calcium foliar and make sure that I can try and get nutrition to the plant while maybe it can't drink on its own. Um, but as far as his specific conversation, I've got no clue. I'd imagine it's a little bit of the same that he's always been discussing. Yeah, look, I think you you covered the dot points really nicely just there. I um I wanted to to change topics for a moment because you have inspired both me and a number of other people to sort of give uh, growing their own vegetables a good whack. And I, I like the uh, the idea. If you're growing cannabis, you can definitely grow your own veggies. So. I think many people, including myself, over the past two years have been following your adventure with the family farms. Can you give us um, just some of the dot points of what you've learned and uh, just any thoughts in terms of encouraging people to grow some of their own food? Yeah, definitely. Um, my wife runs the farm. She knows a lot more and has learned all these lessons firsthand about how hard the work is, how much planning is involved. But I will tell you, she's upped my belief in what we do because of the success that she's able pr to produce. And she's always had a, just a knack. Like when we first met at our first dinner, we were talking about growing plants and I ended up, you know, visiting her and finding out that she had like it just covered full of jars from an outdoor that she'd pulled down. And I was like, I'm in love. But it really took it a step further when I saw what looked like hydroponic catalog magazine photo shoot of tomatoes growing on one vine up to the ceiling with just a rainbow of Rasta from red to yellow to green and every color of transition. I just, I really did think that these cocoa nutrient growers were the only ones that could fill a greenhouse like that. And I thought organic tomato production might look like just bushes. And when she started doing what I found out, it was the training. And obviously training is huge when it comes to indoor growing as well. You can just grow naturally. That's fine. It's fun. But when you manage a slightly more flat canopy, that's even to our light, you get more yield. And so when I saw her start to manage the single lead on the tomato plant and tie them to the string and attach them and get them to grow. And knowing that underneath was just worms and some of the amendments we'd put in following the typical living soil style, it was unbelievable, the production level. And it's been every year and the cucumbers and the, in that group, it just really upped my level of belief. I'm like, oh my God, this works phenomenally well. And Coupling that with the fact that um, in the outdoor field, you can get good results as well based on some limited soil testing and some basic amendments. And my belief in that building soil is very, very possible for the average person. Um, our alkaline soil in this basically parking lot, we built the, the front area in, not parking lot, it was just flat, compacted dirt. When we did a soil test and saw that there was like not excessive sodium or any problem, we amended each bed with a little bit of uh, compost, tiny bit of peat, just because it's acidic and adds organic matter. And there was very low organic matter. And we put some basic amendments in and we we're able to produce that year. 
Uh, we could have waited and cover cropped and you know done the slower process, but we wanted to produce results right away. And when that worked, I was thinking, oh my goodness, all this stuff works. Everything we've been learning about indoors, it translates fully to outdoors and it allowed me to gain confidence from her activity, all the hard work she put in. Um, I will say some of the things that I didn't see coming was like, you know, to have perfect lettuce beds and to be able to harvest them. Well, we can't use mulch in there because now you need a, it's basically covered. Like the soil doesn't need mulch if it's covered by the living plants, it's a living mulch. But if you're using a greens harvester for, for a restaurant and it starts cutting up straw in there, like that's not ideal. Um, or rocks, you know, you're trying to use a seeding machine. Obviously plants grow through it in your backyard. You don't need to pick all the rocks out. You just plant the seeds. But when you start running down a row perfectly straight with exact spacing on a seed machine, that's going to, you, you know, divot the soil and drop a couple seeds in and go on to the next one rock, you know, I mean, it's just, it fumbles. And so now you can see dialing it in instead of in an indoor tent where it's like, what's the humidity? What's the temperature? You cannot control that outdoors. What you can control is the tilt, texture, the uniformity of seeding, the uh, watering, and every single lesson that she's learned over there and we've brainstormed together has been harder than anticipated. So um, for what it's worth, I think it's really rewarding, but it's also not in our, on our own personal, like it's not at our house. And the only thing that I think would be more rewarding is if it was like a true farm where your house is there and your crops are there. Cause you can give them so much more love in the evenings and spend time walking through the greenhouse. And we live far enough away where we kind of miss out on some of that opportunity. So just things that we've, that I'm observing. I love it. Brilliant message there. And I guess I'd love to ask you, I, I know that in myself, I, I tried to grow my own fruit and veggies a few years ago. And I think fun, like when I was growing, so I had the skills, but I think the error I made was I selected all the wrong stuff, you know, stuff I don't, stuff that doesn't produce lots of fruit or stuff that doesn't grow quick. What are your recommendations for things that are going to, you know, earn their spot in a little home garden? I think it, what's important in a home garden is you know, the way that we live, it's unlikely that you're going to replace hundred percent of your meals from your garden, unless you really have this desire to do so. And that's fine. I encourage you to do that, but I don't want that to take away from your desire to grow because uh, sometimes it's all or nothing. And if you throw that idea out the window and think, okay, as long as I get some production, now it becomes, which crops could I actually add to a lot of the meals that I already eat? And in essence, eat living vital food full of enzymes, full of the beneficial bacteria that was on it. No pesticides, like this is the goods. This is what you want to eat. And since gut health is important, I think even some is better than none because you're stimulating that biology. You're adding all these natural foods and they're harvested minutes ago or hours ago instead of shipped all around. And, you know, I think the food kind of dies. It's, it's like vital when you eat it fresh out of your own garden. And so with that regard, like I think every single person should grow some sort of mixed greens in a small space and you can come harvest them. And in fact, they need to be harvested often. If they're not, they'll bolt and they grow unwieldy. And so learning that, I would just harvest even if I didn't need it, um, which would have me eating more. But what you can do is, you know, you can add them on your cheeseburger. You can add them in your tacos. You can add them with your eggs. You can add them at two meals that you may already be making instead of trying to change your entire life philosophy overnight to eat only vegetables from your garden. The other thing I notice is a lot of us want to grow really cool plants that we've never heard of because that's really fun. But then we end up not eating them because you're like, I don't even know how to cook this. And I'm not sure when it's going to be ready for harvest. <laughs> Um, so I think that what's most important is stick to the basics of stuff that you're actually going to eat and grow that at a minimum so that you at least get that benefit. And for me, greens really stimulate a lot of what I eat and it's super quick. 
Um, radishes are great because they're really fast, but not everybody likes the flavor profile. Chopping them up and learning new ways to cook is part of that, adding them to tacos. Um, and then tomatoes, while I love, I feel like the stuff that produces consistently day in and day out can be a little bit more rewarding. So that's why I mentioned the greens. Um, having your own carrots, delicious, but it does take a long time. And so you have to look at the number of seed, you know, days that it takes to produce. And that can kind of take away from it because you wait all year, then you get 10 carrots and you eat them and it's done, right? So um, they do last a while, but um, I just do think that I, I focused on like tomatoes and peppers when I first started gardening and not the lettuce. And now mainly I just plant like lettuce right away because it grows so quick and I can eat it without you know, all the meals. So I guess consider that grow stuff that you're actually going to eat and you'll be really well rewarded. Yeah, nice, nice. That's that's exactly what I've gotten to. I I wrote down all the the veggies I eat regularly, and then figured which ones grow quickly, and went from there. And I guess my my one I pass on to people is Lebanese cucumbers. God, you get like a new cucumber every two days or so. If if you like salad, it's a good one. And pickles, you can make pickles out of all the cucumbers. You know, I mean, they're so good. Just quick ones too, even in vinegar. My lady just made the first jar of pickles yesterday. You're a mind reader. Oh, good, good. That's cool. So I wanted to ask you. So I grew I grew these cucumbers outside, and um, it was all right. You know, it was in just like just some soil in the front of my house, and it was you know it was all right. But then I got a high quality soil um, from Organic Gardening Solutions. It's essentially the same as your three blend. I got so much more cucumbers from it. It was insane. And so I wanted to ask you: Have you ever done like a basic analysis and figured out like do you get a return big enough to merit buying a high quality soil or do you think you should just use what you got keep it cheap because it's for food and you know like you just just plant more plants or whatever i don't know um no i've never done a site you know a mathematical analysis to determine because i just want the best um and i want to produce the best and i really enjoy that knowing that everything in there that's going into it i agree with but somewhat hypocritical um on our vegetable farm the cucumbers were in just that native soil that we amended and they're gangbuster, the production level. It's unbelievable. But we did put premium compost and amendments in there. Um, I think at the end of the day, you got to do what makes you happy. And if you're growing for food purposes, I at least want it to not be lacking in key you know, elements that would either lead to an unhealthy plant or something that's not going to last as long in the shelf. And I'll tell you from the vegetable farm, when my wife produces it, the lettuce lasts for weeks in the fridge. The cucumbers are unbelievably good texture and last much longer. So there's certainly benefit to having a nutrient dense food. Um, I think what happens is in these cheaper soils, it's not like you're getting just less, you're getting imbalance and excesses, um, excesses in sodium, other things that just cause a lack in production, flowers to fall off, disease to set in. And so on, on one hand, it's almost like if you buy a tool that doesn't completely do the job, you've com- wasted all of your money. But if you spend a little more on a premium tool and at least does the job and does it well, I don't think you can call that wasting. And so I always consider it like that. Um, but man, when it comes to production, I really feel like you can get away with some very cost-effective things. You can make your own compost. You can make your own amendments. It takes more effort. There's an exchange there, right? There's always some opportunity cost. But um, I do get much better results too in using our more premium soil. Yeah, there you go. Proof's in the pudding. I love that. Um, just a last sort of question on this general topic. Uh, both the listeners and myself had sort of had this common observation that builder soil is moving very much in this more uh, education orientated direction where it, not just are you selling the products, but you really want to try to educate people on how to use them and all the, the nuts and bolts behind the scene. 
Was this the end goal for you or did it just sort of come about like that? I think it's always been the goal, but it's also out of necessity and that, you know, you sell a lot of products, people buy them and use them, but you sell gardening products and people have some very strange questions and they want to know exactly what to do. And, um, you know, it's hard to have all of our customer service, even though they are growers, um, they have different styles. And so to put the build a soil way sort of in place was to allow freedom for our customers to understand how I might answer their question and help them along the way. Um, but since the beginning, build a soil is really, our goal was to help empower organic minded growers with the best quality products and free education. Um, in the beginning, it was more every single person I talked to, I'd educate, but when there's hundreds of thousands, it makes a lot more sense to document and start to build on that. So it's a natural evolution. I don't know if it was our plan from the beginning, but Dean helped with YouTube and we were already building some other education content. So we're just going to keep going down that path and see how it works for us. I think that making things more accessible really, really helps. Um, a lot of people might want to try to grow the organic way, but when they go to the hydro store and they're given a part A and part B with exact directions from start to finish, it can give them that confidence looking three months in the future, how they're going to make it all the way to the end. They have an exact method to follow. And when it came to the organic style, it was like, well, good luck. You have to be a weirdo and read all this stuff and understand this versus that. And so I think that kept a lot of people out of it, which kind of is why it was cool. Not everybody could do it. But at the end of the day, I would rather that 80% of people that would avoid that because of all the effort, I want them to experience the benefits as well. And so the education, I think, really brings it down to a level where, you know, a lot of people out there make these scientific posts about calcium and phosphorus and all these different things. I was taught a long time ago that what we're after is the results. Not, I mean, don't get me wrong. I can geek out on the science all day. I really like it. But the average customer, they just want to know, will this work? And how do I do it? Not the science behind every single detail. Now, as you get success, it allows you that freedom to start to be very curious. But I remember my first grow, it was like, how do I get herb now? Like, you know, I just, I want to justify this light and those seeds I just bought and I need production. And then after that, when you realize you can be growing all the time and you have more than enough, I think you start to really ask a lot deeper questions. So. Yeah, definitely. I, um, I can relate to that hugely. <laughs> um, I wanted to touch on this topic because it seems like amendments and strains and fashion, it, it comes back periodically. We've seen a lot of focal discussion more recently around the age-old white ash debate. What's your thoughts on this? Has it changed at all? Do you, do you think if you're growing organically, does it, does it matter? Because like, I've actually never seen properly organic grown bud that doesn't go to white ash. So maybe it just doesn't apply to us, but like, what's your thoughts? I don't know. This one's hard. Um, I feel like it doesn't matter, but I also, even when I say it, I feel like it kind of does. Um, I've definitely seen some organic that won't burn all the way down to white ash. And part of that is the method in which it's smoked. A lot of times, you know, you just put a lighter to a bowl and you kind of just burn the good stuff off it may not incinerate all the way down to its white ash by really exhausting it like you would if you put it in a joint where it burns all the way through. Um, and certain certain herbs I've just rolled up and they don't burn as white as others. And I think that some of that's genetic. Um, and I do know that if I smoke some hydro and it's burning solid white, like just white, white, and it seems light on the inhale, I almost feel like it's like, like a light cigarette or something. Like, it's just like a light, like, I'm not explain that. Like, yes, there is like a cleanly feel to that. Maybe that's what they're getting at, but 
seriously greasy, potent, terpy herb kind of has a tingle to it, you know, even if it burns white. And so it's hard to relate one thing. You could say, oh, it's easier on your lungs and it's clean because that's how you know. I'm like, well, some of the most potent herb makes me, I mean, it makes me want to take my jacket off and cough and everything else just because it was strong and it depends on the time of day, all these things. Um, so I can't pin it down exactly. I do think that some of the arguments like tobacco, it's the leaf. So nitrogen content may make some difference there. We're smoking the flower and there's resin and all these different things. Um, also when you do like a, a tissue test, you know, there's not, it's not like you see all these elements in there that you're going to reduce down to some ridiculous level and flushing oftentimes just cause mobilization of the nutrients that are in the leaf to move into the flower and it's still consuming it. So at the end of the day, I will say that when I have a good harvest and I let it go all the way to senescence, I let it complete its life cycle. It seems like I always burn white. It's enjoyable. Um, and there's other people that are like one speck of black in there. It means it doesn't burn white. And I'm just like, whatever, is the herb good? You know, like, does it taste good? Does it get you high? Do you enjoy it? Um, so that's really my answer. It's very vague just because I don't have a one-sided opinion there. I've smoked so much herb that didn't follow every one of these rules. And my opinion is, is it good? And do you like it? And that's, what's most important. I love that. You, uh, you you took me back to that famous story of like, I think it was like the 2015 Emerald Cup or something where like the winning sample was found to have mold in it and the judges were like, oh, I just picked little bits of bud around the side of the mold, you know, it was still great smoke. Like obviously not the exact same, but it goes to prove the point. Like, is it good? That's the question, you know, like there's all these other variables, but um, interesting stuff there. So... I had a bit of a technical one for you. In Australia, it's it's notably hard to find certain types of bone meal, fish bone meal. What you find is a few companies, um, I don't know whether it's just a mistake or whether it's like purposely misadvertising it, but they'll sell fish meal. So, just the whole fish. So, there's like a lot of nitrogen in it and relatively a small amount of bone in it. My question is, if, if bone meal is a little harder to find and someone's looking to get a nice organic source of phosphorus in their mixture, I historically have recommended wheat bran because there's certain varieties that have nice phosphorus in it. What's your thoughts on that? Do you have something you might opt for instead? Yeah, we use an organic rice bran that was 6% available phosphorus. And I mean, you got to understand when you're talking available, that's a high number because you buy like calcium phosphate mineral and it'd be 3% available, 20% total. So getting double that out of an organic brand, I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. So I recently keyed into the brand thing and that's what we use. Part of that is because some of the phosphorus sources can have heavy metals in them and we want to avoid that at all costs. Calcium phosphate has some cadmium in it, depending on the source can go up and down. And at the same mine can fluctuate a little bit. So we've stayed away from that in our soil recipes. Although calcium phosphate has a very high reputation when it comes to soil testing books and building soil and the energy. And so part of me wants to, to stick with that, that mineral colloidal, that clay based version, but I also want to be as clean as possible. So those are where some of those nuances come from. Bone meal, I think provides really good calcium and phosphorus, but I know I could be wrong, but I think down under the phosphorus, it's a bigger deal. Like there's, it's not as naturally high in phosphorus ecosystem. It could affect the water more like there's problems. I think even fertilizer companies are restricted on the level of phosphorus that they can offer on even like hydroponic nutrients. Um, so maybe that's partly why some of the bone meal is not as popular, right? Cause spreading copious levels of phosphorus across the farm may not have produced an industry where it's available. 
But I will notice when I test a fishbone meal that I purchase here versus fish meal, sometimes I'll see very similar numbers. And one appears to be a lot more bone, but sometimes, you know, it's not perfect. And so it is interesting. You will see some nitrogen sometimes even in the bone meal here. So it's not perfect across the board, but they seem to always have the phosphorus they promise because they're going towards a minimum guarantee on the label. But when it comes to minimum guarantee, they can be a lot higher without any penalty. So someone could tell you this is a one, a 10, two. Well, it could have a 10, 10, two, and it's not a problem. They only guaranteed at least it have one. They didn't tell you it had 9% more than they promised. That could be a problem if you're calculating and buying it, you'd have wished to know what the extra was in there. So testing on your own on big farms is advisable, but um, heavy metals are the inverse, depending on which state. Um, in fact, I was just having a conversation about this, but Washington mandates you to tell, tell them the maximum that it could be. And if you ever go over it, that's a problem. So that led to a lot of people saying, well, okay, the max is here. I'm testing here, but if it ever fluctuates, I'm safe. Where on the NPK, it's the opposite. You say, well, I'll pick the lowest number because if it ever goes over, I'm fine. I always must be over. So understanding that might be helpful, but um, phosphorus. So there was some companies trying to make organic phosphorus sources out of like seeds and maybe some capacity there, but the seed meals that we've tested seem to not be very high in it. Um, one material that seemed to come back pretty well was the insect frass, not as much as the brand, but it did have more diversity there. And I feel like the brand, it makes our soil heat up probably because the carbon. And so that's not, you know, terrible, but, um, that's one thing that the bone meal doesn't quite do the same, right? It doesn't come as much carbon. It, it's just bone meal. So that's something to consider. And I, I would carry steamed bone meal, but I can't find any, it's not like there's any farms that are saying this is just from cattle that have been fed organically. No, it's like pig and cattle and everything fed everything. And it's just some big facility. So that's part of why I've stayed away um, with fish bone meal. The sodium can be a little bit of an issue, but most companies that produce a good product, it's not really a problem. It's just more against the soil test. If you're already high sodium, there could be other advantages. And then like foliar spray. Yeah, really soil, I guess, like Organics Alive has some powders and stuff, but that's very different than asking about amendments. So it's funny you mentioned brand because um, that's what we've added into 3.0 and all these others to keep P high while we pulled some of the other materials that can fluctuate with heavy metals. Yeah, nice. No, I'm really glad to hear that because I, I was worried for the past few years I might have been uh, giving out the wrong recommendation. Well, and some brand uh, doesn't have as high of P. And so I know that Terraganics is the company that makes distributes Emerose EM1 here and used to be owned by a guy that I've come to know. And that's a whole nother story that I'm not really happy about how that all process worked. But anyways, um, they were using a brand and they claimed an MPK level on like a brand compost mixture or something for Bakashi. And they ended up having to start to add other inputs because the P dropped on a batch of brand, wheat brand that they were buying or rice brand that they were buying. Um, and so, you know, fluctuations can definitely occur in natural products based on the farm that it was grown on and how it was done. So I will say fishbone meal is always going to have phosphorus brand. You want to be able to maybe inspect somehow if they have a test and a lot of these companies will share their tests with you. So they may have a label that says one, 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 you can be like, Hey, do you have an actual NPK test like on your brand? And it might come back 5%. You're like, yeah, that's the stuff. That's what I want to buy. So that might be helpful. I love that. I love that. Sort of relating to that and uh, one of our listeners also chimed in with a similar thing. So, I've sort of just amalgamated two questions together in this one. But I've noticed when I do top dress with something like uh, wheat bran 
or um, just even some of the general amendments I use, I get this massive explosion in beneficial population, like notably hypoapsis and um, what are they, rove beetles, roly polies. And sometimes I feel like the population maybe explodes a little too much. Do you think this is just a reflection of me needing to top dress a little less organic matter or like what's your thoughts on that one? Yes and no. Um, These are the stuff that, you know, everybody that grows living soil knows, but it's not as commonly talked about. Rove beetles are a nightmare. Like they're great, but they get in your herb too. They end up growing wings and flying around or they'll climb up on there. And so it's kind of like, well, you're getting rid of the fungus now, but now you have like, you know, it's like trading one for the other. And to this day, if I grab some nugs, I'll make sure that I just take a quick peek and make sure I'm not smoking a rove beetle or something, but it's really more of a minor nuisance, especially when you're keeping things in balance. Um, I did notice the same thing. Um, I've even had some customers, you see every end of the spectrum here when you're going, working with thousands of people. And I've had some customers that have reached out and said, you know, I have these little tiny, slow moving bulb mites or orb mites, depending on what you want to call it very slow moving round bulbous looking ones. And you'll see them on the, on the woodier material on seed meals, and they'll just be decomposing it. And so much so that you can have like hundreds of thousands of them. And I've noticed it, that if the humidity is really high and you have tons of fresh chopped leaf mulch and lots of amendments in there, it just stays in the ideal conditions for them to the, to the part where you can actually see them climbing up the plant. And while most people do a defoliation and a cleanup, and by the time flower comes, you're not going to see any of them. I've actually had some customers that had to point out to me that they were having a major issue and I didn't believe them. And they'd send me photos and I'm like, oh my God, they're in your bud. That's terrible. Holy shit. And it would lead, you know, inevitably we'd find out they just had cover crop going wild and a million things top dressed. And it was just conducive to that. So while nature is good, um, it's all about balance. And one of the things that I was fascinated with early on with starting living soil systems is that early on you'd see population explosions and then they would die back and you'd see something else come in. And eventually it's kind of like you create this homeostasis of different activities going on. And it seems like they're not all going out of control, but we're in a perfect environment. And I've had roly polies, like you mentioned, go crazy. It's only happened once but it was to the point where they were starting to eat my plants and strip my stalks. And so I had to deal with that. And I think in that particular time, I was using like a lot of woody mulch and they just were proliferating. And it was from the compost that I had gotten at the time. Um, and other times it's, you know, the rove beetles or those orb mites, but for the most part, when you're top dressing every once in a while and you're following, like cleaning up the actual airflow by defoliating a little bit, we're indoors. We don't have all the environment to work with. I see that things stay pretty much in balance. So maybe what you keyed on is top dress slightly less. Um, I do think less is more, you know, I really do. I've been able to do more with less than I anticipated, but when I'm reamending, like I did that three by three bed, we broke down all the cover crop in there and then we mixed all those amendments in. Um, it broke down into something great, but it's, it's, it's different when you have the whole decay and worms and, and the plants are growing you see those weird population explosions away from the light in the shade, hidden under the mulch. And so it's something to be aware of. Um, I don't know if you have any specific instance that was like problematic, but for most of mine, I just kind of like, no, I'll see what happens and kind of avoid being overly concerned. And typically it takes care of itself. Um, I may strip out a mulch layer and reapply some straw or something. If I'm really concerned that something was getting too wild, just because I can throw it in the compost bin or something. Um, but a lot of problems in organics, I think are caused by like chasing your own tail a little too hard, trying to cheat, like treat a couple of 
excessive population in the soil and almost hurting your plants to do so. So just remember that as well. Yeah, totally. I um, was the exact situation you described. And uh, for anyone listening, you, you can remedy it exactly as Jeremy said, you know, like just, just take some of the top dressing off and start fresh. And I, I had a similar predicament to one of your customers where I dead set had these beneficials crawling up towards the buds. And that was sort of what instigated me to um, remove the top dress. But another thing I did, which a lot of people say is helpful to hear is you, you can sort of, you remove the top dress, but you can also just get some tape and just put it reverse around the stem. And then if anything starts to crawl up, it'll just get stuck there on that bit of tape. And then over the next day or two, it'll, as, as you've taken the mulch out, it'll settle down. And as you said, it'll, it'll come back to normal. Yeah. We've had people like with roly polies, for instance, you can put some tangle foot gel on there, some tape, but they climb up, die on the tape, and then the other bodies just crawl over the dead ones on the tape and bypass it. So if it's really bad, nature's going to find a way. It's uncanny. Um, however, airflow is good. So a lot of times we don't have any airflow underneath the canopy. And so you can defoliate and clean it up. And we always recommend um, below our like scrog screen or the level at which we're going to flip the flower from, everything below be stripped off, called stripping the legs. Make sure you defoliate underneath because it's not like the sun where there's space between plants and it's going around it in like an arch. It's flat and you're going to completely grow the canopy. And so everything below it is devoid of light and is in a different environment, a much different environment. And that's part of the benefit. It creates this microclimate, but um, adding a little fan to have some airflow underneath that canopy discourages it, I think, from being proliferated with such an abundance of life. Um, and it encourages that life to stay underneath the soil. What I mean by that is we're not killing anything, but we're self-limiting. Like worms aren't going to produce a billion worms with no food. They're going to self-limit according to the container that they're in, the size and the feed intake, because they just can't. They're going to run out just like humans. So when you provide an environment that is unlimited buffet and no airflow, all the humidity and the cover crop goes up to your plants and they can climb up the stalk and they're just going to do that. And as they overpopulate, they're going to run out of room and food and they're going to start to migrate and it'll become a problem. And so knowing that, I think that if you see our grows, we never, like by the time flower comes, the cover crops kind of died down. We've, we've muzzled it a little bit and we're not top dressing. Like when it comes to during a grow, we don't pile it on like we do if we're reamending. We're very light. And I do think that helps. Adding some airflow makes a big difference. Also, um, because biology is dependent on moisture, and we even preach this, keeping things moist in that mulch layer, once you have the mulch, it's moist underneath it. A lot of people come and they wet the top like every single day just to make sure it's moist under the mulch. And I'm like, well, I think you might be proliferating some of those issues. So um, our desire to overcare and overlove sometimes can lead to these situations. Yeah, hugely. We uh, we end up killing it with kindness. I can I can relate to that. So just before you mentioned, you know, having things perfectly dialed in, I wanted to ask you because I think you're going to have a good personal experience with this. More more notably within the soilless growers, so cocoa, rock wool, that sort of stuff, there's sort of a robust discussion going on about at the moment about whether new LEDs are actually as good as the old HIDs. And you see some big name figures being like, I'm switching back to double ends, blah, blah, blah. I think the LEDs are better and you just got to dial in your room to fit that. What's your thoughts on this one? I agree. It took me a while to get there. We were burned by some of these early LED companies that were blurple or not the good quality. And um, I feel like nowadays when you're looking at it, there's differences and they are different the way that they operate. And without understanding that, you're definitely going to get different results. 
I also do feel like some of the older heads are experiencing a certain profile from their certain cut. They're going to get when they grow it their way. You know, I mean, some guys are charcoal, some guys are wood pellet, and some guys are only, you know, propane or whatever. And yeah, they can all cook, cook the same meal, but it might be a slightly different profile that they're looking for. And HIDs may contribute to that. But when it comes to a newer grower trying to get the best out of their plants, the best for their environment, the best yield, the best taste, I feel like there's no one right way, but LED fits the most opportunity there across the board. And it used to not, the yield wasn't as good. The quality was arguably different because it would, they would focus on their lack of potency out of the LED. And I think the marketing in the beginning was uh, get a hundred watt light and it replaces a thousand. And they'd say it's because they are using like the specific spectrum to highlight on the areas and eliminate all the rest. And that quickly went out the window. And now we can tell with LED, it's full spectrum, just like the sun. And that's what we're after. None of it's waste. The plant needs all of it. And so once every turn to that, I feel like then LED was on the right path. And then they just said, you know what? If a thousand watts is good, then a thousand watts is good. And they started making big LEDs. And there is a difference in how that energy is used, but a watt is a watt. And I really do feel like it was misleading to tell people, hey, you can use a 500 watt LED and produce the same as a thousand. Now you kind of can, and here's what I mean by that. A thousand watts with a glass hood that gets dirty, that's overdoing the potency right near your plant, but not as good. You know, there's all those things. It, it reduces from the actual light output. The LEDs, it's raw right there. And it can be close. It can be far, depending on if it's the little strips or if it's the big cobs. So now there's a tool for every capacity. But the main difference I've noticed, you've probably experienced this too, one thing I will say that I like about HID is this, it's more of a single source, like the sun, it's like a bulb and it feels warm. Like when you're on the beach and I feel like the, the plants probably react well to that. And so what I've learned is if you're going to use this, this term, the VPD, the vapor pressure deficit, what they encourage you to do is take your temperature and have it relative to your humidity in, in, a, in a way that the plant likes. But what we forget is that's the plant's leaf temperature that's important. And when you're using a double ended HID, you're going to have a 70 degree grow room with like an 80 degree leaf temperature or higher, depending on how close to the light it is. But in an LED, you could have a 75 degree grow room and a 68 degree leaf. <laughs> it's almost like the heat is dissipating off the back of the LED, off the heat sink. It's not being projected down in a way that feels warm on your skin the same way. There's warmth in the room. And so I know some people are like, oh, you don't have to use an air conditioner if you use LED. I'm like, well, if it's hundred degrees out, and you have an LED, it's not going to be 80 degrees in your tent. Like it's just, it doesn't invert um, because energy is energy, but that is a difference how it projects onto the canopy. And so what I've learned is that um, managing, I mean, they are some unbelievable horsepower in these LEDs. The HID with all that horsepower, I will say when people went from single-ended and they went to double-ended, the same learning curve happened. A lot of guys would fry their whole grow because these double-ended, they needed a lot more space. You need more ceiling height because they blast. LEDs, people think, oh, this little LED, they are potent. And if you take an LED, that's the new technology and you put it six inches from your plant, you could be blasting them with like 1500 par, just like you could with a double-ended LED that got too close to the light. And so some of that learning curve is, hey, you can back these things way off and get phenomenal growth, but you probably want to have a, a warmer grow room because now at 80, 85 degrees in your grow room, now your leaf surface temperature is closer to what it would have been under a 70 degree grow room with HID. Then what happens is because of the leaf surface temperature is proper, then it starts 
drinking water at a faster rate and transpiring slightly faster, then it's using its nutrients, which means it's going to be yielding. And so I did see a number of people are like, you need more CalMag under an LED or whatever the supposition was. I do think it was more related to what I call, um, or what the industry calls DLI or daily lighting integral. That relates to the potency of the light. And I think you couple that with the fact that most people think you just can't overdo light and they get this new LED and you can overdo it, especially when you're growing 20 hours on like in veg. Um, I believe that nuance is what eliminated a lot of people. And, you know, if I'm a snowboarder and someone tells me skiing is all the rage and I try it and don't like it, I'm just going back to snowboarding, right? I'm not going to like stick to it for two years and figure that out and change everything I do. So I get why people would stay, but I think, um, man, I think Soil Kings did this. I think they switched over to LED recently after doing, you know, a little bit of both. And they probably had some very good reasons based on data and probably their customer's opinion. Um, but man, I'm really impressed. We use all LED in all of our new setups. Prior to that, CMH, ceramic metal halide, although not as big as the, I mean, they make double ingots now. God, that was my favorite light for veg. Really just healthy plants out of those CMHs. And what I think I attribute it to is the 315 is the most popular. And guess what? That's way weaker, which means I was growing very healthy plants by following the DLI rule of not overdoing the light without really knowing it. And I was told it was just a healthier full spectrum light, but I think it was the warmth from the CMH the fact that it wasn't too intense when you were like a foot away, it became totally palatable and it was full spectrum. And so it wasn't the light, it was the full spectrum, the distance, like all those things combined. And so once you understand that LEDs just crush, I think they work really well. Yeah, totally. I'm, I'm with you. I love them. And yeah, once you get used to it, it works really well. I wanted to ask you about the use of uh, the Q extract or saponins in general do you feel that there's any issues using them, say, every watering or would you recommend to space it out a bit? I don't do anything every time, but I will say wetting agents are one of those that I feel more comfortable with adding in almost every time. I mean, let's say you take a shower and every single time you soap, well, it's no problem. It may dry your skin out just slightly or something. It's different than what we're talking about, but you also don't have to, like, if you didn't go hard that day, you're just taking a shower to warm up. Like it's not, you know, it's similar in that. Yes, you can add the cue every time, but if your soil is decently moist, are we really adding a benefit as far as distributing the moisture evenly? A lot of times, once it's nice and wet, it's nice and wet. But I then saw Jay Plant Speaker when we kind of collab collabed on this product together. Um, he was experiencing larger trichome head size from using what he thought was the cue and was able to correlate that to the bag size in washing his hash into the accumulation from the same plant, putting all of its resin heads in a, in a larger bag than before. And so you're like, oh, okay. So we're getting a higher percentage of this trichome head size versus the smaller. And either it was more uniformly large or whatever it was. And he correlated a lot of that back to the saponin use. And um, I, while I do believe that I don't have all the evidence to share that. So I, I wouldn't tell someone that guaranteed they're going to increase their trichome size or something, but that seems to be a lot of the correlation. And then the other thing is could encourage me to look at saponins as a plant growth promoter, not just a wetting agent. And as a secondary plant compound, it seems to have some benefits to soil biology and other things that make sense. Um, not only that, just for motility. Like if you ever looked under a microscope and you see stuff moving that isn't really moving, it's like moving in the water under the slide. It's not actively going against the current. 
And when you're talking about biology, a lot of times it's limited to its little range and you put this slippery cue in there. And I think it can allow things to move around slightly more, but some of that may be just my imagination going wild. And so of all the products, um, the wetting agents are the ones that have added the most to the water, but even still, I don't do it every single time. Almost the purest of me was like, ah, I got to get some straight water in here, you know? <laughs> Um, but even on commercial grows, like, man, just adding that wetting agent, whether it be for foliar, just watering new seedlings, like it just made the job easier. The water wouldn't just run out the bottom as quickly. You knew that it was going to go wall to wall. And I've never seen someone overdo it when they're adding these tiny bits of wetting agent. So it seems like there's not a negative, but if there isn't a huge upside to doing it every time, then it's going to affect the budget. And so I feel like the less is more is probably the way to go. When it comes to foliar sprays, I pretty much added to everyone though. Like I want it to might like, it's almost like waxing your car. Like you want that to beat up and micronized beads on there and have an effect. You don't want big drops just rolling off the plant. And when you look at Jadam, that's where I learned some of that from as far as every single spray that they make has that Jadam wetting agent. And to me, using the extract of a bark is, a, is slightly more natural than making a potassium hydroxide liquid soap. And so I steal from Jadam what I like, and I love the Jadam wetting agent, but it's better for a foliar spray. If you want something for the soil, the soap bark, the Kuyaha or the yucca or all these other ones, it makes a ton of sense to me. So um, hopefully that helps, you know, answer the question. That's brilliant. And just as a follow-up one, the the tap water where I live at the moment, it's it's shocking. It's like pH eight and a half. I've been using... Um, just like some lactobacillus, just as an organic pH down. Been fine. I've been getting good results with it. I wanted to know, do you think there's any issue doing that long-term? No, I think it's great. Um, so out here, we have pretty alkaline water. It just depends. Uh, there's a difference. When you're water testing, um, high pH is different than alkalinity. And I know that we're talking the same thing as far as alkaline is above seven, but alkalinity can actually be like bicarbonate and things that add alkaline to the water instead of just a high pH. Um, and obviously the pH has to come from somewhere, but when it comes from problems with alkalinity, treating it with an acid is the way to go. And it's weird to hear me say that because a lot of people are like, well, why would you use pH up or pH down or anything like that? Well, it's when you're building soil, the pH is the culmination of what the soil is made out of the calcium, the potassium, all these building blocks make that pH. And when you add water, you're not going to change the entire structure of your soil, which means you're not changing the pH, which means it's kind of a waste. But in hydro, if you change the pH, all the nutrients are dictated upon that water having the right pH. So it changes everything. Now in farming, it's different. If you have, like we first learned this with our LOS, all your Malibu, we add a lot of oyster shell flour based on Coots recommendations. Well, when you have a lot of oyster shell flour in your soil and then your ditch water that you're using instead of filtered water, has a lot of alkalinity in it, all the biology can go to work on this oyster shell flour and separate the calcium from the carbonate and release the calcium. And then you put water in it that immediately binds it back into calcium carbonate. And so nature has this way of like, it's attractive to like combining things together. And that can be a problem because you never, your plant can't get access to it. And so if you're always adding an acid, like the fruit growers around here, we have alkaline soil. And if they're growing peaches, a lot of them will inject, um, it's like a sweet water system. They'll actually create sulfur from the pellets and inject it right into the water. And what it does is it's not like they're trying to lower the pH. They're trying to cure this calcium availability issue. That's constantly being bound up by the alkaline water. 
So once I understood that, I'm like, oh, I get it. Okay. So even in living soil, if the water is dirty and you don't have filtered water, it's causing lots of problems. PHing it could actually do more than pH. It could eliminate by acidifying that alkaline bond. Um, and so that, I mean, people would just put vinegar in their ditch out here on the farms and make a huge difference by the time it would dilute and go out in the field. So I do believe that's a benefit. And these labs absolutely are very, very low pH. So it makes sense. And in fact, um, EM1, uh, that was used and sold into many other industries besides farming. And one of them that Eric Lancaster was always telling me about was descaling the buildup on like these industrial complexes. And so to me, descaling the water by acidifying, that's kind of a similar thought process there. I don't see why not. I mean, lactobacillus is ubiquitous. There's a reason why sauerkraut works. You just chop it up, put some salt, and you're good to go. Um, so I don't, I can't see a problem with it like at all. And in fact, one of my favorite new products, I'm not sure if you've heard of it. There's an employee here and makes it, it's called Yahweh Thrive, not the Thrive N. <laughs> uh, Thrive is a word that he really liked, but um, it is a labs. But what he does is he takes raw, organic, local grass-fed milk, which you can't buy. You can, I mean, like buying raw milk is a nightmare. It's like you have to own a share of the cow. It's a big deal. So of course, labs are great, but using raw milk is really cool. And then instead of just doing like a rice wash water to make his own labs, he uses expensive kefir grains that he's cultivated as pets to grow into a large population. So he can make labs out of a kefir that separates that raw milk into a liquid way. And then he bottles the liquid way, stabilizes it. And I got to tell you, I told him to do it because I like, I used kefir at my house. And when it would separate too far, cause I'd wait a day, I'd pour that as my labs. And I always had good results, but I always had little bits. So I can never like do a whole grow with it. And when I first got that product, I'm like, okay, I'll try it for him. And just because I want to be a good guy and I used it and the plants were like the next day. And I'm like, okay, what do we have here? And so it's been one of our best-selling products as of recent. And in fact, in the most recent YouTube series, we've been adding that at one ounce per gallon to the reservoir in this auto pot system that sub irrigates. And I think part of the reason we were able to get it to work is because that labs was constantly in there. Like, creating this environment where it may have been anaerobic in the bottom of those containers, but it allowed it to work because that's how labs works. So man, I would keep doing it. I think it's great. Brilliant. Brilliant. Love to hear it. Got one more question for you before we jump onto a few fan submitted ones before the end. I noticed on the website, you guys have a killer new product, mustard seed meal. I was like, oh, I've thought of this. I've used mustard, the plant as a cover crop and had reasonable success for the IPM. I wanted to ask you specifically, what's the IPM properties like on the mustard meal? I love the mustard. Not only does it smell so good when it hits the soil, like when we have a fresh batch, it goes in, it's like ugh, wasabi or something. It's amazing. Um, but the reason why we did it is we really are after good, clean sources of seed meal um, from Karanja and neem cake and camelina, which is a wild flax. And that's part of Steve Solomon saying, hey, in a complete organic fertilizer, a seed meal is a very important part. And you think of people that eat vegan or vegetarian, it's like, you don't have seeds and beans and stuff. You're not going to have any protein. It's going to be a problem. And so that's like the peak of nutrition. The plant's putting all its effort into the seed. But what I found interesting is that um, these producers, we get them from out of California, they would help um, organic strawberry producers. And the strawberries are very prone to getting these fungal problems and, you know, ruins all your, your crop expensive. It's a huge loss. And so what they would do is they treat the soil with these awful chemicals and then they plant the strawberries and that would fumigate the soil of any of the pathogens. Well, these producers now produce a mustard seed, they press for oil, run their tractors off of, 
And when the mustard is grown on the land, it organically, all naturally biofumigates the soil and prevents all that disease. So they're able to either use the meal or grow the cover crop and then immediately terminate it and plant strawberries and get very good results. And so I started thinking, you know, a big part, one of our issues that I wish I could solve because I'd be a millionaire is fungus gnats. And while I can't go out there and say, hey, use this and it's going to kill your fungus gnats because you and I both know nature is very fickle when it comes to guarantees on killing things. Um, but the way that I've been able to use it, God, it made a big difference. Um, like our build a flower would have fungus gnats in it from the Oli mountain fish compost and from worm castings. And I hated that. Like, I just never want someone to be like, finally, I'm going to go organic. And then they get a gnat and they're like, fuck this. I can't have this in my house, you know? And a lot of us are like, well, it's kind of the sea. It's like people that work out. You're like, well, you're going to be sore. We just don't talk about it that much. <laughs> well, in living soil, it's well, there's going to be some gnats sometimes. And when we started mixing that into the line, what happens is when it hits the soil, there's an enzymatic reaction that releases this Mirnase enzyme. And that's for a limited period of time, for like five minutes or something. And it, it might have a lingering effect, but that's how, act, how long it takes to build up these enzymes and release. And that's what releases that, that wasabi-like odor. That basically kills all the larva, at least from my observations. And there's been white paper studies on this. The challenge is that these compounds are phytotoxic and they can hurt and stunt the growth of your plant, but not once it's gone. So I've experienced the best results mixing in the Build-A-Bloom, or I'm sorry, the Build-A-Flower. Now there's no gnats that come out of the bag. I mean, you can't guarantee that, right? Nature is unbelievable, but like 99.99% less to the point where I'm so grateful that I found this material. When I mix it into our soil, it pillows with white growth because what I see happen is it like biofumigates the soil. And then all that's left is the beneficial bacteria. And almost like once the forest fire burns, everything teems with life. The soil just pops off in my, in white Santa's beard growth. And just more than I've ever seen, almost more than the Kashi. I feel like because it fumigates and cleans the soil, all the, the beneficial proliferates afterwards. And so when we mix it, we see less fungus gnat issues. We see an abundance of life and it's a great seed meal. So it's a trifecta for me, but We've made very little inference about how to use it on actively growing plants. I had an earth box where I sprinkled it in there. It took out every gnat, white feeder roots growing through their healthy plant. I've had other plants where I top dress a little, maybe heavy in a water and it burns the edges and they feel like they're stunted for a slight bit. And it may be that just a little bit of stunting is not the end of the world, but I pride myself. I love, I think a lot of our customers love having those perfect leaves and knowing that organic produced that. And when they start to get burned, they're like, why am I doing this? That's what hydro is for. Like, <laughs> so I am hesitant to make recommendations on how to use it. I've made water extracts from it. I've tried top dressing different ways. Um, but one of the challenges is let's say you go in a grow room and you have like two beds of soil. If you don't get every nap, meaning like you can spread this, the mustard seed meal out there and it'll kill the larva. But if there's one freaking gnat left. That enzyme is now gone. The soil's teeming with life and the gnat will come back and then you'll have the beginning of the process of life start again and they'll multiply. So um, it's good that it doesn't make it inhospitable for life and it's a short-term period, but it makes it so that it's not an end-all be-all. Um, but mixing it in for us has been a game changer. I love the material. Brilliant. I love that. I'm going to have to try to track down some myself. So on the tail end of things, just got a few viewers submitted questions here. And um, the first one I wanted to ask you was, uh, have you ever considered offering your services or establishing any sort of presence in the European market? Um, no, I'd like to. 
but there's other people that have come and done that. And, you know, shipping across the United States is hard enough, let alone across the world. Um, maybe from a consulting standpoint, but I sent, I tend to focus all of my energy on my own business and it's hard enough as it is, you know, making a profit in this industry is very difficult. Sometimes I feel like we're just on top of the world and other times I feel like we're never going to make it. And I feel like every entrepreneur probably feels like that, right? That's part of the fun. Um, but expanding that overseas when I haven't mastered, like I haven't solved the riddle, so to speak here, it feels a little foolhardy. So um, that's part of what goes on in my mind. Other than that, I also don't want to ship stuff from over here over there. I feel like it'd be better to help someone find something locally that worked well. Um, but certain products like the Q and aloe and coconut and stuff like that, it's already shipped around halfway the world. By the time it gets here, it'd be fun to share some of those lighter weight products. And we've definitely considered expanding. Um, Canada, Mexico are really high on our list. And we're going to be going into that market this year as far as working with the labeling tariff codes and what you can import, what you can't. We've tried to do it and we just have been going through growth challenges as a business. So I decided to focus effort on what's more important than trying to focus tens of hours away from other problems we could be solving on going international. But God, it would be a dream to have some products all over the world. We've seen our products show up everywhere in the world by somebody that flies here and mails it to their buddy or whatever, but um, nothing, you know, as far as like an actual e-commerce thing. So, Yeah, nice. I can, I can appreciate that. I think expanding internationally is a big step for sure. A, a really good question we got uh, from one of our listeners was, how often did you uh, top feed the autopot system before the roots were able to reach the bottom and just access the sub? Uh, so top watering, yes. So yeah. what they recommended me to do is to wait. I, I, I have to go look, but I believe they said 10 to 14 days in that size container to establish it. And I thought, well, they're going to err on the side of caution because they really want to make sure because they know what I know. If you sub-irrigate too early, your plant's going to die. Um, you could rot it out completely. And I, it's the only system I've ever had where you kill a plant, not the autopot, but a sub-irrigated. When I thought, man, these earth boxes are pretty cool. If that's good, bigger's better. And I found these round, black, tall, sub-irrigated containers with like 40 gallons of soil that would fit in, 30 gallons or something. And I filled it up, put a plant in, bottom watered, and killed the whole plant. And I was like, oh, shit. Wow, that is funky down there. It wasn't breathing. It got anaerobic. But as long as the root system was in there digging and it would go dry eventually, it worked but it never would go dry when it was so much soil and so little plant. So I believe what I did is I followed, I have to look back at the video because I remember discussing it, but I waited about 10 days. And to me in the earth box, once I saw a few branches growing, I know from what I know studying roots, the first thing plant roots do is they go wham to the edges and down to the bottom. They don't like grow in the middle for a while. They immediately search out. Like if you release a whole bunch of cattle out of a truck in a new field, first thing they do is walk the entire fence line. Once they understand that, they go hang out. I feel like roots are similar. They go, bam, search their checking account, their savings account, see where the water, the food's at. They get established, set up their home. Um, and that typically, in my opinion, if the environment's right, takes less than 10 days. So I erred on the side of caution. I think I went closer to their 14-day recommendation, um, but I didn't have any issues after that. I do feel like early on, it felt slightly wet down there and I was worried about it. That's why I ended up adding the labs and because I didn't do like a side-by-side, -side, I don't know if it made the difference that I was looking for. Um, it seemed to have, um, but that answers the question. It was like 10, 12 days that I top watered. And then after that, I turned the system on. Beautiful. I love that. I love that. Uh, an interesting question here that I had noticed myself on the side is, is there any notable differences between the Q-Extract 1.0 versus 
Yeah. So we have the Q20 and Q60, and that is based on a number of the minimum guarantee of the saponin percentage. Um, they're both higher than that, but we want to guarantee a minimum level. The 60 is been impossible for us to purchase. And that's part of what went into our desire to make the 20. Um, but it was also because we wanted to be transparent. We never told people the Q60 was 60. We could have just kind of changed the ingredients without saying anything. However, um, we wanted to be very transparent and there are some differences. So the 60, when they make like an animal vaccine, they're after these saponins and very pure compounds. That's part of why we can't buy it is they can sell it to the highest and best use to these medical companies. And they forecast like two years ahead of time with the production level. And that taps out the plant's capacity. And they're like, well, every day we've got work. So why would they care about us? And our companies try and involve us and get us more material. Um, but that's part of why we haven't seen as much Q60. What they do to get the 60 is they take the natural extract from the bark from the tree and they just make like an aqua, like they boil it, I believe. And then they get basically the natural saponin level, which is closer to 20%. Then what they do is they pump it through like a vacuum filter and that gets it up to 60% or even higher in some instances, um, a lot higher, 75%, things like that. Um, and so it is a little bit more pure saponin, but Bildazole has always been more about the natural, like the natural pressed neem oil we talked about, the seed meals, not doing these extractions, so to speak. I even like smoking flour rather than, you know, full you know, dabs, but that's just preference. So when it comes to the Q20, that is as natural as it gets. That's right off of the finished product. That's about the natural 20% that it comes in at. It's a little slightly higher on good bark. Um, and that's it. It's not filtered. And so what you get is some sugars and some polyphenols. And so I think it's probably better for the soil, but it leaves, it's a little sticky around the edges of the bag because it's got the sugars in there. Um, and so it pours and mixes slightly different. We've had some feedback that it doesn't mix quite as well as the Q60, which makes sense. It's filtered down to just the saponin practically. Um, but I actually prefer the Q20. Um, I think if someone was trying to make like a pesticide spray or something, and they're really trying to go hard on the level, maybe the Q60 would make a lot of sense. Um, I like them both, but for the cost, I feel like the Q20 is great. So. Brilliant. Our final technical question for this one, and I think it's a good one, submitted by one of our listeners. They said, I'd love to know Jeremy's views on the lift the pot watering method and checking the weight versus just a 10 to 15% volume method. Oh, the lifting's better. The 10 to 15% is kind of like a shoot from the hip way to tell you, hey, don't go more than 15% or you for sure overwatering. You're going to get runoff everywhere. And if you're going way below, um, you better do it more often, right? If you're going to do like a percent or two, you should be doing it more, you know, more often. And so that was just a way to share with people who've never done this. Like, Hey, is 10 gallons, hundred gallons. Like what does this plant need? And so you could take a 10 gallon pot and say, well, Jeremy says do it at most one gallon. And it could be a fast growing plant needs a little more, but one's enough. And you can always give it more the next day. So that worked. But when you, from the beginning, feel the moisture when you're building up the pot, plant it, you can get a good weight, calibrate that in your mind. And then if you're ever wondering, because over and under watering can appear somewhat similar, you can grab it. And if it's bone, if it's light, you go, oh, well, now I know the issue. And if it's super heavy, oh, know the issue. So lifting it is huge, but in a hundred gallon pot, you're like kicking it, trying to lift the edge. You're not really sure what you're doing because you can't lift it. So we've been using these EcoWit moisture meters. I love them. Um, that feeds to my phone. I can see the percentage. And over me doing it for a while, I'm able to share the percentage that I see on there. And then other people can try and match it. And that allows them on a big pot to not have to know like how heavy is yours versus mine. And I'm big on things that allow communication from a distance over a subject. Um, but at home, I mean, lifting it works really, really well. 
<laughs> I agree. Final one before we wrap up today, a bit more lighthearted. Uh, it's a two-parter. First of all, surfboarding or snowing, if you could only pick one. And then secondly, uh, how's your wife doing after her surgery? I know a lot of people are you know, sending good vibes. Yeah, so right away, she's doing really well. Um, recovery is hard. It's a long process, learning to basically walk again. You know, they cut. It's like a hip replacement. This is an osteotomy. And so what they do is they like cut your bone. They rotate it to change the angle of how it interfaces. Then they cut a piece off and they allow your hip to encapsulate it and then put it all back together with bolts. So it's been hard, um, really hard. But I'm always impressed by her tenacity. And she's back up at three o'clock in the morning these days, going to the gym again, doing physical therapy. She crushes it. So she's doing great. Um, and then, sorry, I just keyed in on that. What was the other question? Surfboarding or snowing, uh, snowboarding. Oh God, surfboarding or snowboarding. That one is really tough. I would say surfing only because I see these old guys out there, 85 years old, something still paddling out and catching good waves on a longboard. So I feel like I love the ocean. I would like to end up there one day. And while snowboarding has a special place in my heart, I definitely feel a drive up into the mountains in a snowstorm for a long session is a little bit... You know, you can't just do it right before work like you can surfing. So um, surfing is a special place in my heart. Brilliant. I love that. And, uh, you know, it goes without saying, we're, we're sending all the uh, healing and positive vibes to your wife, though it sounds like she's just a, a monster and doesn't need them. Um, so I think that just about brings us to the end of it for this one. Were there any general comments or shout outs you wanted to make? No, I think I want to wrap it up um, partially because, you know, we've gone a long time. Well, I could be here for hours longer with you, but I feel the pull of work from behind the office door and I want to make sure I get back there. And generally, I just want to encourage people to um, not sacrifice in life for one versus the other. Have both. You can have living soil, which means you can have good quality and you can have good yield. And I think a lot of times people are considering these things like what's the trade-on, trade-off for going to organic. And for me, it was more of a decision about lifestyle. And there's been proven to be so many ways to get this to work. It'll fit really every model, every methodology. As you can see, you're tinkering with the latest tech, smaller containers. I'm doing bigger containers. Um, just, just keep learning. Just keep having fun. Incredible sentiment. So once again, the man behind Builder Soil, the organic wizard himself, Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been a blast. So what do you think, guys? I really enjoyed it. A huge shout out to Jeremy coming by. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. It's always a pleasure to sit down and talk soil with Jeremy. But I want to give a shout out to you guys for making it to the end and to our sponsors. If you want to help support the show, go support our sponsors. We really appreciate them all. Seeds here now. Guarantee on satisfaction, not just germination. Check them out. Best breeders, hottest drops. Seeds here now. We appreciate you. Just like we appreciate Copa Biological Systems. Going to keep your garden pest and pathogen free. The Acuparem, the Spider Vital are specifically designed for cannabis growers. I promise you guys, you won't regret getting some of their products. It will keep your garden happy and healthy, no matter what medium you're in. And a huge shout out to our friends at Pulse Sensors for helping growers around the world keep their rooms dialed and in check. If you want your next harvest to be the best today, get yourself a Pulse Sensor. You may not know which of your parameters are not properly dialed in and Pulse will help you. From a single tent to a multi-state operation, get serious guys, get a Pulse. 
And last but not least, the Patreon gang. We love you so much. If you want to help support the show, go check out the Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash the podcast. There's always things going down there, genetics giveaways, unheard content, exclusive interviews, so much more. We'd really appreciate it. So with that being said, my friends, I think that just about brings us to the end of it for this one. As usual, your boy, Heavy Days, signing out from the Upside Down Library. I'll see you for the next one. See you.